second of Rankin Review's two-part exploration of the horror movies of the 60s. In this episode, your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons and my guest Mr. Lee Beckman are going to rank from our 15th to our first favorite 1960s horror movie that we've seen between the two of us. And we're going to start the episode by doing a, f- a review of Matango. That's the only review for this whole two-part thing that was done over the phone, but it was by necessity. So we'll be reviewing Matango, we'll also be reviewing The Innocents, and we're going to be reviewing a hammer horror movie called The Gorgon. So that's the business that you've just plugged into your ears, and I'm really glad that you did that. And I would also value any feedback that you had to give me. Um, The 60s is not a decade that I'm super, super familiar with, so recommendations, what do you think I missed, Uh, what do you agree with, what do you disagree with? You can send your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Check out the website at rankandreview.ca. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Now let's do this. Please, can't we eat the mushrooms now? That would really be the end of us. monster. Can they escape the dreaded Matongo? You'll find out when you see Matongo. Matango. I think I might have actually been saying Mantango, but it is Matango. It is Matango. <laughs> uh, this is from the director of Godzilla. Yes, and uh, It has a very Gilligan's Island opening, you know? <laughs> uh, a bunch of people on the uh, cruise uh, ship, or not a big cruise ship, like a yacht, Yep. Uh, and find some terrible weather, end up being forced to uh, uh, be cast away on this island. While on the island, they find another stranded ship. And uh, while they're trying to survive there, they find that the best source of sustenance that they have, other than what's provided by the ocean, is that there are mushrooms growing everywhere. Yep. And the English translation of this movie is called Attack of the Mushroom People. Yep. And I guess the most salient 
criticism I can make because the movie's kind of bonkers and it's really hard to really poke holes in something that's as kind of out there as this. Yep. If I had a like my number one complaint about the movie is that it's over the halfway part of the movie before the mushroom people start showing up, right? Yeah. <laughs> and while we're getting there, some interesting things happening. I do appreciate the crazy. 60s surfy vibe to the movie i'd forgotten upon watching it again that there was a couple of musical sort of moments or songs in the in the movie yep um so it's really strange in its tone being sort of light-hearted and goofy and then sort of getting really sinister and dark and the characters turning on each other and you're never quite sure how seriously you're being asked to take this but uh it's It's weird because it's full of really familiar elements to horror, right? The people willing to kill each other, even though there's resources everywhere. They're going to screw each other over because Lord of the Flies. Uh, You know, the whole setting of being cast away on this forbidden island full of evils. All of that's very familiar. But scene for scene in the movie, somehow, you don't know what you're going to get. So that's what sort of makes the movie intriguing and strange. But this was your pick. So tell me, why did you pick Matango and uh, what are your feelings? Um, Well, I agree with you. It's a very strange movie. Um, As I mentioned sort of earlier during the rankings that... um, I would consider this more of a midnight movie, um, but there's a there's a power to this. Uh, this is, as you mentioned, is directed by legendary director Ishiro Honda, and it's based off a short story, The Voice in the Night by William Hope Hodgkins. Um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki looms large over Hondo's work. There's a lot of, um, well, not even allusions, uh, a lot of mentioning of the dangers of nuclear radiation and that's alluded to even in this movie that as as our crew they discover that they're not the first ship to land there in fact they're not even like i think i think there's even like they're the third at some point lots of ships have crashed that we've discovered but looking through um the ship's log it's mentioned that the fungi might be um caused by radiation so that was something that on the second and third viewing, viewing I really sort of took hold, uh, took hold. This film was actually banned upon initial release uh, because of the makeup that was too familiar to the radiation mutation and poisoning that it was going looked sort on. of like tumors. It was a hard thing not to think about when you saw it, I guess. Yeah, yeah especially yeah. So at the time because it was still raw. Yeah. Uh, so it was banned. Actually, it was is this film was kind of dropped and it was not famous at all. It was saved by, since it was cheap to sort of buy and play, buy the rights and play over uh, late night TV and over North America, uh, that's where it kind of, it, it, it much like Night of the Living Dead, it, it just became sort of popular over time where lots of people sort of, sort of saw it. Uh, late night TV. One of those people was Steven Sodenberg, who, uh, wanted to was really wanting to remake this movie but couldn't get the rights from toho i'd be dying to know what changes he would have made because i do think there's something here um the whole idea uh because you're right the mushroom people really don't show up until at least halfway through we get a lot of character development one of the criticisms i would have is there's probably one too many flashbacks back to tokyo that we don't really need to know about, you know, we know enough about the writer and, you know, the doctor and everything. Um, 
but I do appreciate that there was a lot of characterization. Um, a standout is uh, Kumi uh, Mizuno, who plays Mami Sekiguchi. She's that singer. Right. And right away, we, we kind of know that she's bad news, and we don't, and we clearly understand that she's going to turn rather quickly. Uh, I also love Miki Yashiro, who plays Akiko Soma, uh, sort of more mousy of the two girls, and also sort of the love interest uh, of our hero. I, it, it, they set up all these characters, and I do love what the film is saying about class structure, that people we thought that were sort of uh, upper crust uh, in society, um, they easily turn. And the more blue-collar people, with the exception of the assistant professor, um, although they're they're kind of they turn they turn as well. Um, you're sort of shocked at, at the doctor and then at the professor who really does. If you watch closely, he doesn't do a whole lot. It's complaint. He's complained about that all he does is he wants to be away from people and sit in his room and, and he really does not a whole lot. And he just um, sort of bears witness to the horror as it slowly unfolds. Yeah. So. I do enjoy the fact that we get a lot of character development and then they start turning on each other and this sort of sense of desperation because there's very little food. There's like, you know, like the roots of certain plants and some turtle eggs and they do find some canned goods, but of course people try and steal them or fight over them. Uh, At one point... That came on really quickly as far as I was concerned. Yeah. The, the, like, let's screw each other over for the meager supplies that we had left. Because they showed us the amount of mushrooms before they understood the mushrooms are a danger. And they showed us the amount of food. And you'd think that it was as that stack of food got smaller that they would start to turn on each other. But it seemed like it was almost right away. Yeah. Also to what you were saying about the characters... um, spending time with them at the beginning of the movie. Usually I don't mind that. In fact, I, upon watching it again, I wondered how conscious it was that they were going to radically shift the tone of the movie because yeah. it does sort of feel, maybe not exactly like a, a romantic comedy, but like a romantic summer surfy movie, you know, of, of the yeah. 60s flavor for a while. And then it shifts, and then it gets like way darker than anything that started that light has any business doing. And I, yeah. I wondered watching it the second time if it was deliberate, but I do think it does slow things down, especially if you're going into this like with the American title "Attack of the Mushroom People." Yeah. You're kind of expecting the movie to be in a higher gear than it's actually in. It's kind yeah. of in a goofy, meandering vibe for the first like forty minutes or so. You know, absolutely. Um, I agree with you that um, they could have shortened a little bit. Like I said, they had one too many flashbacks that didn't really overall contribute to the narrative. They were just setting um, up the ending, right? So that yeah. when the the mushroom menace has made it to the to the shores, right? Yeah. Um, I do also think the mushroom people, and I know it's the the director Ishiro Honda. Uh, it takes away a little bit of the pathos when we finally get to see like these giant mushrooms with arms and legs come around. I know that it's of its time and everything, and it does kill a little bit of the pathos. I'd be curious, like once again, I I'd be curious of, of, a, of a remake because there's a very zombie-like quality to these creatures. 
And I can just imagine a really tactilely disgusting like version, like with the fungus and the growths on people's bodies. Like if it was troubling in 1963, imagine if they poured 2022 special effects into it. Like, uh, and how fragile you would be as a, a, as a person that was made of these molds and funguses. Right. Oh yeah. So, uh, they're they're more disturbing to look at and threatening and you don't want them to touch you but they're not yeah. so much a physical threat right yeah um akira kubo that, that is kenji Murai. he's he's our lead actor okay um i just uh wanted to get that but i do dig that once the, the people start turning turning on each other and they really do need to work together uh, then there's the mushroom menace and the mushrooms can talk they say the names, they giggle I found that kind of creepy uh, almost like this one of us one of us mentality like the individualist in me kind of goes that's just scary um, because they, they are they are literally running out of food and here's this substance and substance that is really not good for them but it's the only thing they can really eat but if they eat it they become deeply infected and and it is an escape because it's a it's once you've made that decision you can't go back from it right exactly yeah um and some of the characters like well to be fair at first they don't know what's going on so the first few characters might have just fallen into a trap but then we have some characters who are defeated by the circumstances and some characters who actually just throw in the towel wave the white flag and chow down and i think again that was really interesting and that's would be something that could be more seriously explored in a more seriously approached version of this at the end of the day i do think this is just a fun b movie and we might be bringing our own sort of ideas to it (laughs) but uh yeah uh i mean it is what it is and it's a really good example of that vibe of the 60s because like there's I think it's probably a little bit early for it, but there's a little bit of that deliberate kitsch to it, like the a little 60s Batman TV show, yeah. w- where it's a little bit weird, but in a self-conscious way, in a sort of f- look how much fun we're having way. Yeah. And you'd think that that would take away from anything serious that they were trying to do. And in fact, makes me question if they were. Like, am I trying to build this up to being more than it is? Maybe it's just a goofy monster movie. In which case, yeah, it's it is what it is. It, it's fun. It didn't make my list, but I'm in no way mad at it. I'm I I didn't I'd never heard of the movie until you you introduced it to me a couple years ago. So, yeah. well, Honda uh, apparently during the filming told the like, cast and crew that like this is a serious drama. Like, take this seriously because okay. he was known for his. Uh, for his Godzilla movies and destroy all monsters and whatnot. Well, Godzilla's um, a very straight-faced movie. It's not winking. It, no, but it does thrive like um, on the whole. It's a giant man in a rubber costume kind of thing, and you're there to see Godzilla destroy a whole bunch of buildings and people. I think he knew that was goofy, but here he he got the sense that he wanted to take this seriously. It's also trying to be an anti-drug movie. I think it kind of fails in that regard. Well, I did um, want to bring that up because it would be unmissable, right? This is yeah. the psychedelic 60s and we're talking about mushrooms. And if you eat the mushrooms, you basically become a, a mushroom zombie. Yeah. Um, again, if this was made in America, we wouldn't have questioned the satire, satiric element of that at all. But I did yeah. because I don't know how real psychedelic culture is in that part of the world. So yeah. is it something that he would have been commenting on? 
Well, it is. It is. He, he, he uh, according to an interview, he did talk about how the mushrooms represents drugs and drug addiction, and how once you it, the drugs get a hold of you, it's you can't get out of it. Like that theme, I think, is pretty evident in that movie. It's over after the first bite. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I sort of appreciate that, and plus the sort of psychedelic image imagery that he does try. That's why I sort of say it's like a midnight movie. Um, I'm not saying it's quite like Reefer Madness in that regard, but um, it's it's just this uniquely strange, goofy, then serious movie that... We're not laughing at the movie. No. There is some goofy stuff in it, but we don't laugh at it. So it, it's this weird line that it's treading. <laughs> yeah, and not a happy ending as well. Um, they tried two endings. One where, uh, spoilers, uh, the lone survivor after he loses his girlfriend, who, come, eat mushrooms with me. Um, they had one where he's not infected and he's just imprisoned, and the one where he is infected, I think the, the ending where they chose for the release works where he's doomed and... Uh, he, like, he's brought he, the mushrooms with him to the mainland. Yeah, and like, what does that mean? Is that you know, like, are the mushrooms going to start infecting all of Tokyo now? So I like that sort of post-apocalyptic kind of thing. This film really, I think, is for cinephiles, which I, I think we both are. Um, it is, like I said, it's a strange movie, but it somehow works, and I would be dying. I, I think it's right for a remake. Um, because I do think there's there's enough material here to make a pretty, pretty strong horror movie. It's strange that they wouldn't be interested in remake. I mean, I don't know how... It, it, maybe it's got a cult audience, but... It, it does. Yeah, if it's like a profitable uh, title for them, why not let Soderbergh or someone take a crack at it or, or make a new version of it, you know, on your side of the world? Uh, well, well, apparently Toho didn't want to release the rights to Soderbergh. That's, that's why it sort of died on the vine, but... Soderbergh talked about how that movie scared the crap out of him as a kid, and it stayed with him. So, uh, see, and that does trying. surprise me. I don't know that I could. Maybe as like a very young kid, and you weren't expecting to see it. Yeah. I didn't find anything particularly frightening about the movie. I was engaged and interested the whole time. Yeah. Uh, but the mushroom people kind of made me smile, if I'm honest. Well, no, that's the thing. I think that like the like the costumes themselves are so goofy. You could see them sort of bump into the sets the sets jiggle at one point so it does take the, the, the sort of tension away um but the idea of it that you know they become infected you know and they can disappear into the like, the, the, the the mossy walls of the hills and just get consumed by the swampland yeah uh and then you know or they can just out and disappear and then they're like zombies i think that there's so many great ideas with it and it's just the presentation and i think it's just because of its time well and each one of those uh battered ships along the shoreline is another story of another group of people who befell this fate right yeah yeah so i don't know like i said i think this film is for cinephiles but if you can get a hold of it people do check it out like you will not be bored. Is it? It is an intriguing movie. Well, like, yeah, our cinephiles, yes, but I would also say creature feature fans, B movie fans. Yeah. You know, if you're of that era, you know, you like the creature from the Black Lagoon, and you want to do your due diligence and horror, horror homework. I think this is a worthy entry. It's yeah. it's one of these things where there's so many movies of this type in this era 
that you can kind of need to find someone in the know who can say these are the ones to watch. And I would say, yeah. having seen it, Matango is one to watch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, man, if they can make rabbits scary, sort of, they can make mushrooms scary. <laughs> That's another movie that needs a remake. Night of the Lupus, directed yeah. by Steven Spiel- Spielberg. <laughs> Sold, baby. Green light that. Another anthology horror film starring, uh, well, at least Peter Cush. No, Peter Cush and Christopher Lee are both in it. Doctor Terror's House of Horrors. Uh, Peter Cushing um, basically is Doctor Shrek, which he mentions is German for terror. <laughs> and he uh, has this card game that, um, and a bunch of strangers meet together on this train as they, it goes around. And Cushing, you know, you know, can foretell. Uh, what's going to happen to each character. The cruel fate of everyone. Yes, through a bunch of cards, and we we get their stories as the movie goes along. Um, All the stories are pretty solid. There's like a Killer Vine movie, there's a Werewolf story, Um, yeah, Creeping Vine, there's a Voodoo one, there's a Disembodied Hand, Uh, a young Donald Sutherland is in this movie. He is quite good. He's got a vampire one, which was quite... It was scary. I liked it. It, it, it's, uh, I think, one of the few anthology films in the 1960s that all of the stories were, like, good. Usually you get a sort of... There's no balance. weak link. There's no weak link. I liked it a lot. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. The title is familiar to me, and I have some images in my head, but that's all. It's just a foggy memory of an idea of a movie, so I can't really comment, but I will trust your judgment. My 15th, we've already talked about it, is The Witchfinder General or The Mm. Conqueror Worm, 1968, starring Vincent Price, directed by Michael Reeves. Set in 1640s, a corrupt and contemptible witch hunter causes torture and torment everywhere he goes, and we follow him and watch. And it's not necessarily the gore effects. In fact, some of the makeup effects are kind of Yeah, yeah. But the torment the focus on the torture and yeah. the screaming and yeah. the shrillness yeah we talked about it when you brought it up like it's just the 60s version of torture form yeah and uh it's all about like i say the acting and how much he's enjoying it vincent price himself said that he thought this was his best performance in a horror movie no. uh which makes me wonder what he thinks his best performance period if he had to qualify in a horror movie mm-hmm. but i get it it would have been an interesting role and it is different and there's nothing he's not vamping at any point in this he's not winking this is nothing no, like no, the no. Corman, it's, it's uh, straight yeah it's nothing like the corman edgar Allan poe adaptation so there's no yeah. artifice to it at all uh, it's it is a horror movie and uh, it looks and acts like it, um, so yeah, the Conqueror Worm or Witchfinder General. Okay, so at number fourteen uh, we have the first of two Roman Polanski films that are on this list. Um, at number and also, this is one of those at the time was probably considered a new age horror. This is. It's very artsy. Uh, it also follows a long line of 
examining the evil that men do, that women fear, especially when it comes to sex. And that is repulsion. Catherine Deneuve is really good in this movie. Uh, she plays this mousy woman who is, you know, deathly afraid of, well, at least penetration. <laughs> um, some of the effects, like with the hands out of the walls and whatnot, um, there's also something very claustrophobic about this movie. This woman has a mental breakdown yeah. and turns into a monster herself. Um, I recently saw the movie Men by Alex Garland. Um, it, I, I, I got a very repulsion kind of vibe out of this. Um, it's, I, I, he got a lot from, I think he homaged a lot or took a lot from it. Um, it's, it, it, like I said, it, it's, this is Roman Polanski really, I think at one of his greatest artistic, uh, masteries. There's something claustrophobic and you're talking about paranoia about this movie. You're talking about repulsion. Yes. Yeah. I am. Uh, just I'm sure if you'd mentioned the title, but I did. oh, sorry. Um, I think I did. It's tough for me. Like I, I give it an honorable mention on the list. Mm -hmm. It's a type of movie. It, I mean, I feel like I've represented well the sort of arty farty corner of mm -hmm. the horror, and I think this definitely qualifies. But there are so many movies about the this kind of yeah. disintegrating psychology. Yeah. That even though I hadn't seen it, I was weary. From it when yeah. I was watching it, yes, all men are terrible, and yes, all women are fragile. Except for no, yeah. all men aren't terrible, yeah. and no, all women aren't fragile. Yeah, but I get the note that they're playing, and especially at the time that they're playing it, it's significant. Yeah, and there are really cool sequences to it. Yeah. And say what you will yeah. about Polanski, he is a talented filmmaker. Yeah, so. This is one that I felt like I should like that should have been on the list that I kind of didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but uh, I get it. I absolutely get it. And we will be talking about Polanski, obviously, at some point. 14, The Devil Rides Out, also known as The Devil's Bride from 1968, starring Christopher Lee and Charles Gray, directed by Terrence Fisher. Richard Matheson actually adapted the screenplay from the satanic-themed novel. Mm -hmm. It's a very strange and very PG look at a satanic cult. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really strange to see, like, that subject treated in, like, this... It's not meant for families, but, like, it's a very safe movie, considering it involves satanic sacrifices. So I don't think it would be made for a large audience, like, today. Uh, it puts in mind, like, when The Craft came out, they tried to make it into a PG movie. But just because of the occult and satanic subject matter, mm -hmm. it got slapped with an R. And the director was like, well, if I knew you were going to do that, mm -hmm. there would be a lot more sex and violence in yeah, this movie. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Uh, so it's not handled subtly or tactfully, mm -hmm. but it's interesting seeing this 60s look at the sort of cape and gown satanic imagery. Mm -hmm. And it's a, like a progenitor of like the whole satanic panic thing that would start to build into the 70s and reach its peak weirdness in mm -hmm. the 80s where you see people going to jail, some of whom are still in jail for cult activity that mm -hmm. never happened. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a very interesting sort of snapshot of, of that type of movie in that time so and again I was 
I looked up a lot of Richard Matheson stuff. Like I said, I'm a late stage fan of his. So uh, check it out. Number 14, The Devil Rides Out from 1968. Right on. All right. At number 13, um, Bergman, Igmar Bergman felt really guilty about leaving his first wife for um, Liv Ullman, I, I do believe, uh, was her name. Liv Ullman? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and all that guilt poured out into the screenplay of Hour of the Wolf. There's lots of things going on here, but basically, Bergman even agreed that he channeled his guilt. I don't even know if he was Catholic, but just the thought of you know leaving his first wife, and it's kind of ballsy that he actually casts the woman he left his first wife for. Um, and Alvin in, in Live Alvin even admits to this too that you he know, wasn't so guilty as to go back to her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know like you know the the marital problems of Igmar Bergman, but it you know also talking of basically the plot is this artist with his wife have moved onto this island almost if you will, uh, and um, he starts seeing some you know kind of creepy things going on. Uh, as well as talking about, you know, the uh, you know the hour of the wolf is midnight between twelve and one, where you know the nightmares, the mysterious things goes around, and his wife, you know, starts to think that he's hiding a secret, which of course is then revealed in the movie, and that's all I really want to say. It's it's a very arty, farty, nightmarish, fever dream kind of movie. I think it's well again it'll probably mean anything to anyone who watches it which is I think maybe the appeal of Bergman perhaps but yeah. like uh, this idea of the dark thoughts that come at late at night that yeah. where you, you sort of see yourself and become the monster but is it a literal werewolf movie I don't think you could fairly call it no, that no. Uh, it's much more a philosophical discussion with oneself about mortality and depression and the human experience and it, it's valid and worthy, but I, yeah. I didn't find it... It didn't feel like a horror movie to me. No, it's not. It felt To me, it felt like a nightmarish, feverish dream in, in some sort of ways. Um, I love Max von Sydow. Oh, no. Like, it's really good. Like, Max von Sydow's really good. Liv Altman's very, very good. Um, I guess the dinner scene also it kind of creeped me out a little bit about the third act when he goes to the castle. Um, I mean, we're meant to believe that he killed that kid, though, it's, right? It's very subjective. <laughs> <laughs> they want us to think that, but they don't ever implicitly close the deal on it. So, again, it's it just lets things hang there and lets you sit with it. And you'll take from it what you will. For whatever reason, like I said, I watched that in Persona, and Persona stuck with me more. So, okay. But I'm glad it's there. I, yeah. it, like, it was on everybody's list. It was yeah. like the movie that like I was supposed to put on the list. Well, I, I did not see Persona, so I'm, I'm a little spotty on Bergman, although he did make one of my favorite well, Those are the two Bergman movies I've seen. So. Yeah. <laughs> in 13th place, you mentioned Black Sabbath, 1963, from Mario Blava. Blava? Mario Bava, starring Boris Karloff. Um, it, it influences not just the titles of famous rock bands. Um, Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino were inspired by it when they started writing Pulp Fiction. Yeah. They ended up sort of abandoning that, and what that project sort of turned into Four Rooms. Uh, but they credited uh, Black Sabbath as sort of like what their, their idea was. There's a story about a woman being menaced by a bunch of strange phone calls. There, a man... Turns home to boast of his defeat of an undead being in a story called Wordalak. 
A nurse is haunted after stealing from a corpse. All of these stories are pretty familiar in their sort of setup and delivery, but stylistically, this is one of the movies where I started to get what people were talking about when they got excited about Mario Baba. Like, it doesn't look and feel like other movies of its time. But it does have the same thing that I always talk about with a lot of the Italian movies. The voice is not yeah. quite matching and yeah. the uh, just the bigness of everything. The colors yes. are loud. The performances are loud. Yeah. The music is loud. Yeah. It's just loud. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. You are not falling asleep in a Baba movie. So you're going to catch the wave or you're not. And this was one of the movies that I did. Um, I wasn't like it was a tough one to figure out where it fit on the list which is why it ended up kind of right in the middle <laughs> but uh, yeah. 13th position Black Sabbath alright and number 12 and I saw this film with you for the first time this is The Haunting I imagine this film is on your list yes oh yeah I'll let you then do the plot <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about uh, well I mean even at the time these sort of not even undertones of, you know, lesbianism. Uh, I, I admired the, the boldness uh, of that, which is <coughs> also in the original text, I do believe. There is an attraction between the two female yeah. characters. And in yeah. both the novel and in the film, it's not directly addressed. Yeah. But it's there. Yeah. And it is so there yes. that I really respect the film. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. They do not, they do not hide it. Um, I love that the house is another character in this movie. Like, like the sets are immaculate, especially with the the lining up of the lighting and the shots. Like, this is an old school haunted house movie. Uh, you know that it, it moves at a gentle pace. At the same time, that the, the some of the ideas or even how the ghosts make themselves present. Like, it's terrifying, and it's more to do with. Not only sound, but of the words, like just what the characters are saying, saying and describing. There's a, a, a the scene where "Are you holding my hand?" kind of thing that is, I think, Ignorant Classic, and of course, it has the immortal line, "Can you do it for me, Larry?" In the dark. In the dark. In the night. <laughs> no one. To, there will be no one to hear you scream. In the dark. dark. In the, in the night. night. Yeah, classic every, classic. every time I hear it makes me laugh. <laughs> uh, the Haunting is awesome. It is. Uh, it's much higher on the list. I have a personal connection to it. I love the novel. I love the movie. So, yes, we are going to talk about this one again. It's connected to the next one on my list in that I would say, whereas that is the best haunted house movie, mm-hmm. arguably my number 12 is the second best haunted house movie of the 60s, mm-hmm. and we're going to be reviewing it. It's called The Innocence, starring Deborah Kerr yeah. and Peter Weingard, and directed by Jack Clayton. It's another adaptation of the Henry James novella, and it's another one of the ones that went from that transition from novella to stage play to screen. Yep. In this case, the screen adaptation being done by Truman Capote. Yeah. Yep. Super classic form, yep. taking care of spooky kids, classic manner, is she going crazy? Is there ghosts? And yeah. it is executed perfectly. Yep. So we'll talk about that one when we review it. But once again, for me in 12th position, the Do they ever return to possess a living? And when did you first see and hear of such things? Why, I made them up. 
Shall I tell you who taught them to you? I won't ever again, I promise. Shall I tell you who taught you the things you've done, the things you've said? Shall I tell you his name? <laughs> Perhaps the most controversial concept in human relationships ever presented on the screen. With one of the world's great stars, from the man who directed Room at the Top, a new and adult motion picture experience. director Jack Clayton. It's an adaptation of a Henry James novella. Uh, it's a classic form ghost story. It's been adapted many times. Mm-hmm. Recently they did a movie called The Turning. I haven't seen that, but it has a terrible reputation. Yep. And coincidentally, much like The uh, Haunting, yep. there was a Netflix series by, uh, what's his name? Uh, Dr. Sleep Flanagan. Thank you, Mike Flanagan. Uh, that is not so much a remake of this story, but yeah. sort of takes the setting and the idea yeah. and expands upon it much the way that with the haunting. So, yeah. uh, this is the other grandpappy ghost movie of the 60s. Yeah. And most people prefer it to the haunting. I, I'm ride or die for the original haunting <laughs> myself. Yeah. But I really, really like this movie. And. Uh, once again, we're dealing with ambiguity and is this yeah. about madness or is this about supernatural or is this about yeah. both? Yeah. But the thing that impresses me about this movie is that it has scenes that are still scary. Yep. Today. Yep. There's so many times where I'm meeting the movies halfway in the 60s the- theme that we're doing where I like, I get how that could be scary to somebody or I yeah. like how they set this up. This has two scenes in it that I think are still genuinely frightening today. Okay. And the story and narrative is compelling enough that yep. like, it holds your attention all the way through. This woman is hired to look after these children on this uh, cut-off estate in the middle of nowhere. Quite the interview scene, too. Yeah, the beginning there's of the a movie. grim history to the, the, the house and to, uh, to yep. the kids, and uh, their isolation has sort of sharpened their eccentricities. Yep. And this woman is damaged goods yep. when she arrives. Yep. <laughs> so all of the ingredients are there. And uh, some people are yawning already just hearing that synopsis, and sure. other people are like, gimme, 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 gimme. Yeah. But if you're, if you're a fan of The Woman in Black, yes. if you're a fan of, you know, The Legend of Hell House, yes. if you're a fan of Shirley Jackson's yes. The Haunting of Hill House, yeah. this is absolutely Even Poltergeist, stars. yeah, yeah. It's, it is a fan-fucking-tastic ghost movie, if you want it to be. Yeah. Deborah Kerr <laughs> knocks it out of the park. This movie does not work without her. Yeah. She's got other great actors around her, but it's her story. She like, she's on screen for I'd say like ninety two of the ninety seven minutes. Right. Um. And, and she, along with the filmmaker as well, they they really play up the whole is she mad or is she actually trying to be the hero hero here and save these children and I love it. I I I had not read the book. I did not know the story. I went in cold. I loved it. Um. I loved that. For a while there, I almost wanted her to be crazy. That right. that in fact, like that, that maybe she actually ends up hurting the kids herself by accident. I thought that would have been 
uh, an ingenious kind of end to it, but I do love the ending that we do get. It is really a tragic ending for her because her whole goal was about saving the children. She's been right all along, uh, and she saves one of them. But, yeah, as a caregiver, to have a child dying in your arms is yeah. not a... <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. Not a feel-good No, that, 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 that's, that's not going to go well. Once again, much like The Haunting, the house itself is another, another deep character. Um, there's also an interesting relationship with the housemaid, uh, Mrs. Gross, played by great, the great Megs Jensen. She's a completely gullible person, but the, and she even you know, and we get all these details like that, that that she's illiterate, that she's been at the house for a long time. She knows the backstory. She's our exposition character. In, in but some she sort of does way. see what's going on in a yeah. weird way too. She totally buys what the Deborah Kerr character, uh, Miss Miss, what's her name here, Miss Giddens, Miss Giddens. Um, I even feel sorry for one of the ghosts, you know, uh, and even towards to some extent, even like I know that the other the the male character, the Peter Quint character, is meant to be the big bad of the story, and yes, he does take the child with him, but there's also sort of some, some kind of melancholy to you know his kind of backstory somewhat that. I don't know. I felt a little bit of sympathy. There's something inevitable about the cruelty of the fates. Yeah. And, uh, like most ghost stories, once you see it in its full re- revelation, it's yeah. really sad. It is. It is. Um, I also don't want to underwrite, because Deborah Kerr always gets the, the laudits. Yeah. The kids. Yeah. In movies like these, I think about like the Nicole Kidman one, the others. Yeah. If the kids aren't good, yeah. the whole thing falls apart. Yep. And what I love about the kids in this movie, this little girl and little boy, and are they or aren't they possessed or whatever, um, they don't play it necessarily for spookiness. They let them act and behave like kids. In fact, I'm pretty sure that the actress, she just did her scenes isolated. She didn't have the full context of what was going on. She was just playing it a scene at a time. So there's nothing calculated about the scares about the kids. It's all perspective work. Yeah. Like you say, the camera is preoccupied with Kerr's face. Yeah. Something scary is happening, but instead of showing us that scary thing, yeah. we're seeing her reaction to yeah. it. And then we see the kid's reaction to her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you're like, is she scared of the kids for good reason? Or are the kids scared of her yeah. for good reason? Yeah. No, that was one of those questions upon questions. I do want to shout out Pamela Franken as Floor, but also Martin Stevens as Miles. I agree. Without those two kids uh, working, if we don't believe them, the story goes nowhere. There's some generally uncomfortable scenes with with the boy and and Miss Gibbons, uh, Miles, if you will. Interesting layers of tension. Yeah, like I can understand some. Of the, there's some reviews where it talks about the sort of repressed sexuality of of Miss Gibbons and what's going on here. Like there's a scene early on where the boy's playing with her but is like clearly strangling her playing too hard yeah and the boy like you want to punch him but at the same time you have to keep him sort of remember he might be possessed by this evil spirit is so it's, it him yeah and then there's a kissing scene and you're just like oh uncomfortable but kids do that right? yes yeah yeah but with that extra layer that well spoilers it's actually this one ghost that's inside the boy or at least manipulating the boy the entire time which is why he's been sent home um it's this movie has a generally icky underbelly to it that i deeply deeply admire 
I remember as a child seeing this. Uh, I think it was at my grandparents' place. Yeah. It was on a TV, and the reception was poor, so there yeah. was like static on it. But there's a scene, and it's this horror scene set in broad daylight, where there's this lady in the lake. Yeah. The little girl's playing with a boat by the edge of the water. The little boy is just off the edge of the camera. Mm -hmm. And the caregiver is sort of sitting in the shade supervising them. And they're having this sort of casual conversation. Mm -hmm. And the little girl first talks about a story about seeing somebody at the bottom of the lake. Mm -hmm. But then quickly moves past it and asks about, can turtles swim? I thought not. Yeah. And our care looks up at the lake. And just past the weeds in the lake. Yeah. It's just this woman sitting. Yep. Looks like she's sitting in a chair on the surface of the water in the lake. Yeah. And she sees it right away. And it's so far away you can't tell if the woman's looking at her yeah. or if it's a trick of the light bouncing off of the water. Yeah. And then she looks at the little girl. And again, the little girl isn't responding to yeah. the woman in the lake. She's yeah. responding to Deborah Kerr. Yeah. And then when the girl looks out at the lake, they switch the perspective and we don't see her. Yeah. We go back to Deborah Kerr. Yeah. There's a fucking lady in the lake. And yeah. I remember watching that as a little kid, and it was terrifying. Yeah. yeah. It's one of these things where you just don't expect them to scare you because it's the middle of the day, and they're yeah. sitting by the water, and it's so peaceful. It's not the dark candlelit hallway. We're going to get to the dark candlelit yeah. hallway. Yeah. Yeah. But I found that scene just amazingly well done, and it's yeah. still really yeah. chilling. No, I love the ending where we get the 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 ghost, uh, the male ghost. You know, is right behind the boy when he's starting to go in crisis, lose it, if you will, because we see the image of yeah. an older man in yeah. the window pane behind him. Yeah. But again, you can ask yourself as a perspective: Was that there, or yeah. is that what she saw? Yeah. I also um, this wasn't part because this was based off a stage play originally as well. This adaptation, yeah. they added that song "Willow Willow Away," you yeah. know, that that music number um, that both the kids either sing. play, sing it, whatnot. I thought that was a nice touch because it's a very haunting song at the, for the opening credits. Yeah, and that is a good thing to point out. This is. They did a stage adaptation, and this is Truman Capote's adaptation yeah. of the stage play for the screen. Yeah. So we're layers away from yeah. the James novel now, but yeah. it's really well done. Um, but I so I did you know love that song. I love and there's shots I still remember. It's almost this vertical inducing shot where she's seen, uh, you know that that character. What's um, I keep on getting him, uh, Quint. Quint is staring up at her, and, and the boy's up there obviously playing with pigeons. And she has to go up, and it's that it's sort of almost like... Spiral. Uh, yeah, staircase. That We've seen that shot before, but it's a very nice shot, and it's very fear-inducing that she has to climb these stairs to go and get this boy. Hitchcock did it with vertigo to great effect. I have complained in the past about that scene that's in too many horror movies, yeah. where somebody lights a candle and walks slowly down a hallway towards yeah. something that they know is scary going to happen. Yeah. And it's just like, it, like, I almost get bored with these scenes. Yeah. This movie has the version of that scene. Yeah. Where <laughs> someone runs out of the shadow and we see it very quickly. Yeah. 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 We, we see shadows moving in the background. We see her turning and missing things. And then we again see from her point of view, but we're not sure if we can trust it. Yeah. It, the sequence goes on for quite a long time and you yeah. start to lose the geography of the house. Like, yeah. where are you now? This is too big a room to be the hallway that you were just in. And like, yeah. but 
she starts flipping out and panicking and as you're watching it you're psychologically yeah with her yeah completely yeah. you're being very well handled by the filmmaking too not yeah. to undercut underserve the director yeah. but it's a great story really well executed like yeah. uh no it's uh i get why people love it so much I think maybe if I discovered this movie before I discovered The Haunting, that might have been the difference. Yeah. But I found The Haunting first. Yeah. I also love how the movie is lit. Apparently, they just kind of shot it almost like a hallway down these long, gorgeous, you know, set pieces. Uh, so much so that Deborah Kerr apparently started showing up to the set with sunglasses and then would take them off because it really just sort of beams into her face. I think it creates a great gallery of shadows that just helps that movie as well. And it moves as you got the flicker of the candlelight yeah. and they sort of accentuate that with yeah. like the shadows behind her. It's really well done. Yeah, I kind of the changeling. I think borrows a lot from this movie in a lot of ways. Uh, it's it is the sort of like one of those big haunted house movies. Yeah. This one and the haunting are, are like how it's done for yeah. these types of movies. Yep. Yeah. But it it is a deserved classic. Beautiful. Yes. Yes. At number 11, I love me the short story Incident at Owl Creek. The whole idea that someone is dead but doesn't quite know it yet and they, they go through a... Their soul goes through a nightmare, nightmarish purgatory where, you know, the angels are also there. You could, What's that line from that Jacob's Ladder? You can either see angels... The, and, uh, if you're scared of be, dying, you're yeah. going to see demons tearing your life apart. Yeah. But if you accept your faith, yeah. the demons are really angels. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, Carnival of Souls. Uh, a cool, interesting story. The filmmaker never really had the copyright. Uh, and it was basically played for free on a lot of sort of drive-in double features. And it just kept on playing and playing. And a lot of people saw it. And then it sort of disappeared in the ether. And then all of a sudden just made, it, made its comeback. Uh, I'd say in about the late 80s where it'd be a lot of people got its due. I, I do think it's one of those, and you've talked about it with another film that we'll talk about, um, but I think just so many people saw it that it just, it remained in a lot of people's memories and thus it became this classic film. This young young woman gets into a car accident on a bridge and thinks she has survived and uh, they drag her out of the river and she goes about... Well, she just seems different. And one day, I think going to work, she sees this carnival, just empty carnival, and she pulls over and, well, things start to happen. And she yeah. soon starts to realize that she may not have survived that car accident. If you have seen any horror movie, you know where this movie is going. Yeah. I love yeah. Carnival of Souls. It yeah. is very high on my list. Yeah. And it's completely amateur made. This is yeah. the first and only movie that that director made. Yeah. And it was a slow discovery, like you say. Yeah. And there's something about it. There's something about the creepy guy that's yeah. following her. There's something about the way she seems to be popping in and out of reality. And that yeah. sometimes people can see her and sometimes they can't. And there's a weird, creepy scene where she gets hired to play a church organ. And yeah. spite yes, of the, the fact, church organ. In spite of the fact that she's an atheist, she gets hired to do the job. And then in spite of herself, she starts playing this creepy dirge instead yeah. of the church music. Yeah. 
There's just something about that movie yep. that is creepy. So, yes, yep. we will talk about that again. We're getting into the crossover territory time here in 11th place, Seconds from 1966, starring Rock Hudson and Murray Hamilton, who was the mayor from Jaws. Shout out I, Murray I, Hamilton. And John Frankenheimer, you know, the guy who made Reindeer Games and uh, Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> <laughs> He and, made Ronan. And, and some really great movies, uh, unfortunately. Manchurian Candidate. Yeah. <laughs> Moreau. I, it's just so sad how, how, how that withered out. But nine Seconds is right up there for me. Yeah. I fucking love Ronan, by the yeah. way. But oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Seconds is right up there for me as far as the movies of his that I've seen. And uh, I feel like I should read the novel because uh, yeah. I want to get more into the story. You already brought it up. Uh, Rock Hudson wants to remake his life. And he's yeah. given this opportunity by a mysterious stranger. And new face, new persona, new everything. <clears throat> but he finds his old life wasn't as bad as all that. And yeah. he knows his old life. It's not... This new life is fake. And his old life, for all of its flaws, was real. But you cannot pull the reset switch and there's some very very serious repercussions and uh that third act man it gets pretty it's pretty hardcore it's a slow burn to get to the horror it's more like sci-fi intrigue for the first two thirds but i don't find it's ever boring so yeah you already talked about it in an 11th place seconds and your 10th ranked movie of the 60s in the horror genre so when I first heard about this movie, yeah, Steven Soderbergh, a filmmaker that uh, we both admire and love and respect, wanted to remake a movie. And at one time, this film was supposed to star Channing Tatum and a whole bunch of other sort of cast members. But he talked about, as a kid, a movie that really, really terrified him. Uh, and he loved the ideas presented so much that he wanted to go on and expand on it. He never did end up making that movie because Toho never gave him the rights. But this is from the director of the original Godzilla. I want to get his name right. Ishiro Honda uh, did a film called Mantango or Attack of the Mushroom People. Which we shall review. Yes. Um, I find this a very interesting movie and I could see. I would be really curious what Soderbergh was going to do with it. Uh, I would love to read the screenplay. Um... I think this is a great midnight movie because there's lots of things going on. Um, it's an interesting piece, but I do like the idea of it. I, I think we'll, we'll we'll save the plot for when we review the film, but um, I love this movie a whole bunch. I, it could even be done as a, a stage play even, and that is Attack of the Mushroom People, otherwise known as Mentang. Well, we're going to actually uh, screen it one more time. I, I watched it with you once before, but it was, I think, the third or fourth movie we'd watched in like yeah. a 24-hour period, yeah. and I was pretty fried, and I wanted yeah. to take some fresh eyes on it. Yeah. So unless, well, it's too late. It's not on my list at this point. Yeah, yeah. Unless I suddenly radically change my mind. and It's number one. I was an idiot. <laughs> um, but it's it's interesting. Yes, I'll it is. I'll give it that. Uh, in 10th place for me from 1960, here's a movie that destroyed its director, Peeping Tom. Yes. Kohanes Bohm and Anna Massey star in it. Michael Powell directed it, and he was shunned out of the British film industry, yes, basically, from it. Uh, at the time, it was considered a contemporary to Psycho, but today it's almost considered an equal to Psycho. A lot of people considered a progenitor of, like, uh, 
or an inspire it inspired like found footage but upon watching it again it's really only the kill sequences when he's looking through the camera where they cut to his point yeah. of view it's it's there are sequences of forced perspective but yeah. i think it, it's dishonest to call it a found footage i get what people are talking about but yeah that's not the thing about the movie the thing about the movie is the psychology of this killer and him wanting the image of this beauty to last but not just the image of the beauty but the very moment of her murder to be captured on film yeah and it's troubling the very I, I get tired of, you know, a cigar is never a cigar, but yeah. the long steel pole that he uses to penetrate the women yeah. might have a little bit of phallic imagery oh, in there, no, possibly. Sex is all <laughs> over this movie. Um, for 1960, this is pretty gloves off. Oh, yeah. I, I, um, spoilers, we will be talking about this movie again. I actually have it ranked a lot higher. Right. Um, a lot of people credit this as the first slasher movie. Slasher and... fans take note. Yeah. And I, I, I will say yes, for all the talk of either Halloween or um, Black Christmas, uh, you know, being the sort of, or even Psycho, you know, some people will say that Psycho was probably the first slasher film. I, this film was even, I think, months before it. And, uh, and it, it's terrifying. The lead performances, both of the hunter and prey, if you will, are the key to this movie. Both of them are stellar. Um, this this movie made me feel uncomfortable, like fearful, uncomfortable. And I think that's why it rattled people. Yeah, like that's why, especially when that it came out of Great Britain, you know, yeah. where they're just so above this sort of thing. No, 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 no yes. never, 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 never. No, Martin Scorsese has a great essay about this movie that I think you should read. Yeah. Because he does talk about both the history and what happened to the filmmaker, but also of the film itself and why he considers it one of the best films of that decade. Right. Um, yeah, no, I love Peeping Tom, and I'm not surprised that it's here. Number 10. What's your number 9? So, we've already talked about this movie, but this movie is bug fuck crazy insane <laughs> i uh my like when the credits finally wrote on, the, on, on this movie my jaw just dropped um and that film is spider baby um i do it think it makes the top 10 yeah no i really like this movie i think i told you after i'd seen it you need to see this movie you need this um shout out long chaining i want to talk about there's a lot of performances or scenes that i would like to talk about with but Lon Chaney Jr. was this character actor, really. I don't think he ever really... I, I haven't seen all of his work. Of course, he was the original, you know, the Wolfman, and I think... But he did this whole sort of almost low-status, nervous kind of character, you know, very doomed. He could be quite, could be quite regal, but um, I think he did really well at these sort of broken characters that usually sort of are with, the, you know, the werewolf myth, what whatnot. Um, and... There's some points when you talked about where you know there's a cro there's a battle between old theatrical performances and sort of realism. Right. There's a scene where, because he's been like this, he's been trying to protect this family for a long, long time. He dedicated his life to it. He's, it. It's his charge, and he does love them. He knows that they are in fact monsters, but they're uh, his monsters. monsters, and he will do anything to protect them. And the scene where he finally snaps. Like, I could see some like real meth, almost like real real actor to it. I, I uh, where he and I, I don't know. I bought him snapping, right. and, and I thought this is Long Cheney Jr. 
Really? I, I was sort of impressed by him. Um, you know, it, it's not that sort of universal classic grand theatrical, almost romantic period style acting. It's, I thought, this is a juicy role on a film that when it first came out, no one saw. It was... It is weird that it wasn't noticed yeah. because it does seem to demand attention, doesn't yeah. it? Just it just seems like so aggressively weird. That... Yeah. Do you have the actors that played the twins or the twi- two sisters? No, not in front of me. No. Okay. Well, I, I I also didn't. I forget them. They should be definitely shouted out, and I'm sure we could at some point say Figure it. That they out. are terrifying when they start playing with their prey. And like they would come through, and they come through windows or like a fire escape, like just with the tenacity of children. Yeah, but they're also like sexual, and they know what they're doing. Like they are literally the spiders catching the flies in the web. Hence, Spider Baby. I I think Sid Haig's first film performance. He keeps showing up. It's amazing how long that guy was. His career was pretty epic. Respect, said Haig. So um, he is going to be my um, Cole Hauser award. Exactly. (laughs) Said Haig, you know that when the Beckman's on, I have to give at least one of the Jerry's. So uh, it is, yeah, I'm giving the Cole Hauser rank and review award to said Haig because he's also, I mean, I think he's good in the movie. Uh, He's, I... I, how would you describe it? <laughs> well, again, it, there is an insanity to it and yeah. a shrillness to it yeah. that kind of has this cumulative effect. Yeah. It's not any one or two scenes that I run to. It's somehow the full experience. It is. <laughs> it is. Like... Uh, I give a lot of points for originality. Yeah. Like, you can't really compare it to anything else. That, that's going to give me points. So, yeah. that's where it is. Like, I'd like to watch, like, I would revisit Spider-Baby. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my, my number nine is about as different a movie from Spider-Baby as you can get. Okay. Uh, 1963, Shock Corridor. Starring Ooh. Peter Breck, Constance Towers, and directed by Samuel Fuller. And even though it was made in 63, it was unavailable in the UK until 1990. Mm-hmm. It was shot in 10 days, and a couple of cast members were hospitalized afterwards. What? This movie has a reputation. A journalist is looking into a suspicious death in an asylum, and he commits himself to look at the conditions of the services being provided. And believe it or not, they're fucking horrifying, and the people there are just being made crazier. Mm-hmm. And the journalist, and it's a pretty obvious trajectory himself, he can get himself committed, but he can't get himself uncommitted. <laughs> and he goes in sane. And by the end of the movie, he is a lost soul, just joining the rest of the lost souls in this thing. And I guess on its face, it would just look like a straight drama. But, like, the darkness of it... This is like a darker One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Interesting. Okay? Interesting. And One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest could not be described as light. Right? Yeah. Uh, it's just unsparing in its look at systemic failure. And uh, again, you can wonder how much has changed since 1963. Yeah. Not as much as a lot, but not as much as I think we would like to believe. Yeah. Uh, and... It felt relevant. It felt like maybe a, quote, unimportant film. Yeah. You know? Yeah, maybe a homework type of film. The spotlight of its age. Yeah. But undeniably kind of horrifying. So, shock corridor. Wow. 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 
Or, okay, so at number eight, uh, if there's one film that you haven't seen yet at the 60s that I think you should see, Larry, and uh, this is another Mario Bava film, um, I want to read the plot of this. Okay. Just to, so, the ghost of a sadistic nobleman attempts to rekindle his romance with his terrorized, masochistic former lover who is unwillingly engaged to his brother. That description just doesn't even quite tell you what this movie is all about. The whip... And the body. For those who ever thought that Fifty Shades of Grey could have been a horror movie, I give you the whip and the body. Is it not a horror movie? <laughs> yeah, you could argue. You could definitely argue. Just a different kind of horror movie. But, um, yeah, Christopher Lee plays this count who owns this castle, and he's a right fuckwit. Like, he is an asshole. When he dies, no one is, like, surprised, and no one is like... Oh, he's gone? No, everyone clearly hates him. He used to be engaged to this woman who is now going to be uh, marrying his brother. but he, and, he, and he's been away for a while, and he comes back to this castle, and everyone is like, Ugh. like, they hate him. Because he treats them terribly. Um, but him and this woman, back in the days, uh, we find out, actually had this romance. Uh, and even though that it was like a very abusive relationship she did actually love him uh because she had a a fondness for the lash Mm -hmm. um she gets off on getting whipped she's Uh, naughty and needs to be spanked yes (laughs) yes um uh, and so christopher lee obliges like it's this very masochistic relationship um i don't think it's any secret that he gets murdered (laughs) And the movie then becomes a mystery on who actually did it. But there's, of course, a long list of suspects. Uh, but, you know, the, the, and even though the, the girlfriend, uh, the, the woman, uh, well, I am going to actually say her name. Dalia Lavi plays Navenka, uh, who gives a brave performance. Um, this is like the 60s sexual revolution was in full swing where, you know, and this is what I love about the horror genre because they can explore issues that are taboo. Not that I think S&M is, I mean, I guess it's taboo for some people, but there's a thin line between pleasure and pain that I think people get off who are into this stuff. Yeah. Um, this is deeply explored in The Whip in the Body. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, you feel, it's a very sexual movie. Um Without not well, no, they do. That I mean, that very much in the Italian part of the thing. Like I've said before, whereas a lot of American cinemas or British cinemas are like, oh, oh, nudity, oh, ooh, ooh, ooh. A lot in in Italy, they're like, yeah, no, nudity. It's not not even a big deal. Yeah, chances are there's going to be titties in your movie, even if it's a comedy. Yeah, like there's going to be titties. Yeah, I don't know. My jaw just dropped at like they they go for it. I mean, like. Christopher Lee practiced hard, you know, getting well with the whip, and like the, my jaw just dropped, man. I just like. And it's interesting again the juxtaposition. In some of these movies, the women are covered from throat to ankle. Yeah. And in some of these movies, yeah, they're just letting it all hang out. Yeah. I admire the audacity of this movie. I mean, it's a good ghost story, uh, even though I mean we all know that it, it's Christopher Lee's ghost that's doing the revenge killing, and of course the you know the 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 wife character knows more than she's letting on, and shocker revealed she you know she still loves him even though. 
It's, it's she misses the whip. She does. I just well, I love the scene. <laughs> Are you ready for the lash? It sounds interesting. I I, I have not seen it. It's so. <laughs> it's on Shutter. Uh, I, I I highly recommend people go see it. It's something like I don't know Mario Bava Bravo. Uh, it, it, it's just disturbing. <laughs> uh, my number eight is another one that we're going to review, and another one which images will probably never leave my brain. Onibaba. Yep. 1964, Nobuku Otowa and Jitsoku Yoshimura, yep. directed by Kaneto Shindo, and I apologize to anybody out there who knows how those names are actually I think pronounced. I pretty well, actually. That fucking mask is so scary. Yeah. It's designed, I guess, so that when you tilt your head down, it looks sad, but when you tilt your head up, it looks menacing. Yeah. Um, and the eyes have this weird slide to them where they seem to be shifting their perspective from left to right. Yeah. But it's not just the mask. There's some YouTuber who always uses images for Onibaba to introduce a lot of his ghost stories or whatever, yeah. something lazy masquerade or something. Yeah. But um, also just the sound. I got sound the, is the, the hissing of the wind through yeah. the, 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 the tall grass. Yeah. And just the grimness of the story, which we will get into when we review it. Yeah. Like I already said that this movie would stand alone just as a visual feast, yeah. but there's actually a lot of meat to it as oh, well. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like what war does not just to the people on the front lines, yeah. but to the people left behind. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, no. There's a lot going on with Onibaba. I'd say it's by far the probably one of the most adult movies on at least my list. No, like there's some pretty deep. It doesn't have the intellectual subtlety of say King Kong versus Godzilla. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Um, sound is very important. I don't want to talk too much about it. It's we'll get shocker. There. It's on my list and pretty high. Um, it's one of yeah. It's based off this Thai uh, Buddhist legend and. Um, it's a very beautiful movie. It's a very erotic movie. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I think it's great. I love this movie. It's one of them. I, it's definitely if there's a top twenty, it would be one of, of all time movies. It would be on there. Oh wow! I am William. Well, like, I, I don't want to say anymore. Right. Well, we're gonna review it. We're gonna say a lot more. So, yeah. What's your number seven? So, at number seven is another film that we're going to review uh, on this podcast and. I do believe it's probably the last Hammer film I have on here, but that is The Gorgon. Ranking high. Uh, the Gorgon is your its your classic monster movie. It's got all the staples that, that are there. And it's got, once again, the, the excellent duo of Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. This is a quintessential, to me, Hammer horror film. I know they did a lot of vampire films as well they were known for, but this, to me, is a great monster movies and i have a deep deep affection for monster movies if you do it right um i will defend you it's not the most original movie i mean in a lot of ways it is it is just a monster movie um great villain with you know one of the gorgon sisters i thought that was nice um almost once again i love the sets as well it feels very much like a stage play in that regard and they handle the monster well uh, where we you know we see it off in the distance when we first see it, and you know, and as the story goes along, we get closer and closer. But it's all done in reflection. Yeah, we uh, we're allowed to see the creature, but the characters aren't. Yes, um, Which I don't is, know. Makes some for some interesting sort of choices. I don't know. I love the shit out of the Gorgon. Um, well, it, it didn't. It didn't make my list, but I don't dislike it. Yeah. I guess it just. Uh, 
It was another one of the Hammer movies that I watched. Like that was fun. Yeah. But uh, I'm I'm not surprised it's on your list necessarily. I'm just surprised it made the top ten. But well, I I gained a deep appreciation for Hammer horror films. Like you, I hadn't seen a whole bunch, and then this was the opportunity to sort of dive in and really see what people were talking about. Um, I, I don't know. To me, this is sort of like one of those quintessential Hammer horror films that like if you want a a, a blueprint, here we go. I loved it. I get it. It said that when mortals looked upon her face, they were turned to stone. Leave Vandor before it's too late. What is it you're afraid of? I'm afraid for you. Or of what I may discover, if I remain. We want you out of this house, mister. Now. For 2,000 years, Megera the Gorgon had kept her evil peace. But now this strange, unearthly creature returns to petrify every human being who crosses her path. <laughs> Starring Peter Cushing as the doctor, did his strange talents direct him to medicine or murder? Christopher Lee as the professor, confronted by a conspiracy of silence that paralyzed a village with terror. Akira died 2,000 years ago. It's her spirit we're concerned with today. It's found a resting place in somebody. <laughs> also starring Richard Pascoe, Barbara Shelley, Michael Goodliffe. The terrifying realism of the Gorgon. She comes to life and brings death to all those who look upon her face. Carla! I am waiting for Carla, Mr. Heights. So the Gorgon is a... Sorry, 1964 Hammer Horror Picture directed by Terrence Fisher. Yep. And starring, you know, Hammer Stallworth, Peter Cushing, and Christopher Lee. Yep. Um, and it's interesting because typically we're used to seeing Christopher Lee playing the bad guy and, yep. and Peter Cushing playing the Van Helsing or the hero role. Yes. And in this movie, they're kind of playing the opposites, as Which, it turns out. Yep. But they're playing with our expectations a little bit. Yes. Because we're not supposed to be sure what to make of Christopher Lee's character when we first meet him, and we're definitely not sure to made to not He's very eccentric, or, Christopher Lee, in this yeah. movie. And we're not sure what to make of the behavior of our main character, played by uh, Cushing, yep. because we're used to him being the good guy, but he's clearly covering up for crimes. So yes. why is he doing this? Yep. It's a different Hammer horror movie in that it's not part of a franchise. It's not like an overarching thing. It's yeah. just an isolated creature feature, the Gorgon. Yeah. This is one of the leftover sisters of the Medusa that's either taken up home in this ancient mansion or is possessing some poor victim and taking lives. Um, the movie starts pretty boldly. We see some 60s beehive hair and some lady back. Yeah. And this guy's painting his, his, his lover. And... Fairly quickly in succession, we learn that she's pregnant, and he goes to talk to her father and is a victim of the Gorgon, mm -hmm. uh, or she becomes a victim of the Gorgon, and he subsequently is found hung. Uh, it's presumed that and she's he with killed child, her. Yes. Yeah, that he killed her and then took his own life. But it is 
pretty dark that, yeah, mm -hmm. we establish she is pregnant and then we kill her. I'm not used to that in the 60s. Mm -hmm. But it is still very much playing in a pretty safe PG aesthetic. Oh, yeah. There's a lot bloodier and a lot bodier, you know, hammer horror yeah. movies than this. So you, you know what you're getting to a certain degree, but they are playing with the formula also to a degree. So we just rewatched this last night, and mm -hmm. uh, I had seen it a long, long time ago, but it kind of felt like a first viewing when yeah. watching it. And again, I think if, if it was on my list, which it's not, it would probably take the slot that The Plague Zombies did, sure. which is another horror Hammer horror movie. Yeah. And that just rang the right bells for me in that you know it, it hit that signature zombie imagery really well. Sure. And I think for you, I'm guessing the Gorgon hit that sort of creature feature template yep. really well. Yep. Because it is absolutely in its purest form, just an escapist creature feature. And the A, B, and C of it is completely functional. Mm -hmm. I did feel sag in the middle of this movie. Mm -hmm. I really did want things to get moving a lot faster than they were. And when we finally got to the uh, you know exciting climax, it's over almost like before it starts. It's very quick. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the special effects, which I do try to be forgiving on, are distractingly distracting for the climax of the film. Yeah, I enjoyed it for what they were, but yeah. But mostly, I had fun with it. I wouldn't say don't watch The Gorgon, but yeah. it wouldn't have been on the list. That's where I start with The Gorgon. The Gorgon is a lot of fun for me. Um, I think the first thing I want to start off with, just with Terrence Fisher, who was prolific he was one of Hammer's busiest go-to directors. This is the guy that, that did The Curse of Frankenstein, their version of The Mummy. Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, The, the Man Who Could Cheat Death. He did a v film version of The Hounds of Baskerville that most people will, you know, cop to have watched. Phantom of the Opera. Phantom of the Opera, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Horror of Dracula. He did a Dr. Jekyll. So, <laughs> yeah, like this guy, like he did, he did a lot. Um... I think he made like a, a, a pretty prototypical monster movie. I think the villain really struck a chord with me. I love the fact that she can, you know, sort of seduce people with their with her song. I thought that was a great little uh, tidbit, and that she'd been at this for a while, and that only, you know, a few people knew the fact that legend had turned into nothingness, and but it allowed her anonymity, or not anonymity, allowed her um, the cover of night, if you will. People yeah. forgot about her. Basically, she started out as a someone who was brought to the asylum because she had memory loss. Yeah. But uh, you know, the the doctor falls in love with her. Yeah. And treats her illness and finds out that she is either actually this Medusa creature or this Medusa creature possesses her. Yeah. And she has been claiming victims up to five over a period of seven years or whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. And uh, he loves her and is covering up for her. And I don't know if he's trying to find a cure or spoilers, if he's just yeah. trying to maintain. Yeah. Well, I, I, it sounds like spoilers, but yeah. if you're watching the movie, the, there's no real alternate plot to follow. Yeah. They don't lay out this track for you, but like... There really aren't any other female characters to yeah. speak of in the movie. We see one female, uh, like, sort of sociopath that's been escaping that they've been having trouble with. But the movie actually could have benefited from a few other red herrings, a few other even superfluous characters, yeah. either to be killed by the monster or yeah. to take distraction away from the nurse, yeah. who I clocked right away. Yeah, it is not a mystery that the nurse is the actual Gorgon as well. And it's not a mystery that the doctor's covering for her, and yeah. it's not a mystery that he's been corrupted for it, right? Yeah. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, it's tricky. There's also a hilarious scene in the middle of the movie where he asks her to recite this this letter that the the father of one of the victims had written, mm-hmm. and she's like trying to pull it from her memory, but her delivery of the words of the letter is so painfully drawn out that I wanted to scream at the TV. <laughs> oh my god, get to the fucking point. Like yeah. that was like a holy shit, you guys. You're just eating the clock right now mm. moment. Yeah. Um but there are not things that are not uninteresting. I like that we start with the one brother. Yeah. He dies pretty quickly. I do agree. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. His father comes in to investigate, so we follow the father for a while. Yeah. He ends up dying and then we jump to another sort of protagonist brother, yeah. in the uh, in the older brother. And I like the way that the they sort of pass the baton narratively between these three doomed characters. Like, yeah. And I I think that embracing that cruel fate and the melancholy of the movie might have helped it. Uh it was just too busy being a goofy Hammer movie to yeah. really take that end of them too seriously. Yeah. But again, if I was remaking this movie, more characters and focus on that doomed family, like yeah. uh, how like they're, they're they're just drawn to this place by the siren call or not, yeah. but just by showing up on that town, their family is fucked. Yep. No, that was another element that I enjoyed. I also do enjoy the fact that for a while, they, like you, you only do see the character either in like faraway long shots, in shadow, or in, from her point of view, uh, from her point of view in reflection. That when we do finally get the re- reveal in the final act, and I do agree that that kind of hurts the movie. Like the snakes are obviously mechanical, and it's a terrible sound, and she's wearing red contacts. That, I mean, but that's just a sign of the times, if you will. That mystery is gone, but Terrence Fisher is smart enough to realize that there's so much mystery built up to it, even with the, the sort of backstory and how it affects the town, the community, and they're you know somewhat in on the the mystery somewhat. That you know, she was a very credible, scary villain. I, I I love that you know the set pieces, which are obviously paintings for some of them, and she's just. You know, behind a veil or a curtain, if you will. I thought that that you know that was a nice touch. Well, again, I forgive the aesthetic. I forgive the yeah. matte paintings, and I forget the sort of yeah. awkward transitions. That's all fine and parcel. I'm just saying, this is the climactic moment yeah. of the movie, where you see the fe- creature full full frame, yeah. and there's a decapitation, and you've yeah. been holding back and holding back. So this is yeah, this is the, the money money, money shot. shot, yeah, and. It's not there. Yeah. And if the movie was as good as, say, Jaws, yeah. you know, we would say, yeah, it looks kind of wonky when it jumps on the boat, but yeah. the movie is so good, I don't even care. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, the movie is not. But I, yeah, it's not Jaws. Sorry. It's not the greatest creature feature ever made, believe it or not. Yeah. But it, it doesn't give us license to get past it. Because we're affectionate to the Hammer Horror universe and yeah. because we've take, gone this far with the movie... Yeah, I let it go. And also, like I say, Christopher Lee being the sort of energetic See, wild card. Is, I love me some Christopher Lee in this movie. Yeah, he's a different role. He's not this composed gentleman. He's yeah. kind of a little bit off the hook, right? He's definitely eccentric. Even when we first meet him, he's like staring into a stethoscope, or stethoscope I think. Or, yeah. uh, and he just, he, that's the whole scene. He's talking away. It's and he's a microscope. Just, microscope, yeah. thank you. Sorry, microscope. But he doesn't really look up at all. He's such an odd, quirky energy pill of a character that he gravitates 
you just gravitate towards him as a viewer. But he really cares for the student that he's yeah. taken under his wing, and yeah. when he disappears to this small town yeah. and doesn't hear from him for a couple of weeks. He shows up, yeah, just like, like where the fuck have you been? What are you doing? Yeah, like you're a buddy, and he's like nonchalant. He's like, don't worry about it. I'm here. Yeah, and he's like, I've got this incredible story about this yeah. this snake woman. And he's yeah. like, all right, well, I'll help you deal with that. Yeah, and, and you're just, just like, what? You're awesome, but what? I'm no. going to show up to become the hero of this movie. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like I say this this whole family being destroyed that's sort of the tragic arc of the, 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 yeah. the movie and uh, in true hammer horror thing you know it, it stops at the high peak of drama and yeah. we don't get the resolution of the denouement but yeah. everybody this guy knows is dead and he's going to have an impossible thing to explain yeah. to the police yeah. here's a bunch of dead bodies and I hear Stan with this bloody sword yeah I'm just gonna go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do also like the fact that you know you look at uh, the Gorgon, the monster itself, and you're not stone right away. Like you do, the idea that you are slowly turning to stone, depending, I think, how long you looked at her as well. Yeah, he first sees a reflection, and yeah. that makes him really sick and yeah. grays him out. But he doesn't yeah. actually fully turn. Yeah, it's not until, and it seems like you have to almost you make the choice to look. Yeah. Because he was denying it, denying looking down, and she was still making the snake noise, yeah. and he finally just relented and looked. And yeah, yeah. There was. Uh, but I do like the fact, almost like a virus, that you, you, the, the, you have only a matter of time before you are doomed. You're still, like, you, the, fact, the fact that you knew that you're going to die still, I think that's kind of horrifying. You know, the, the, I think the father character dies trying to write a letter, um, which I just went, you know, bravo, bravo, Hammer, bravo. Um. Not that Hammer doesn't do this in other movies, uh, but I kind of think that her character, too, could have benefited from being more conventionally, uh, conventionally, uh, like a sexual lure. Like, but you don't, both you, of the you men, don't get that with the singing? No, but both of the men fall in love with her, like, yeah. instantly, instantly, yes. instantly. And, like, she's got the sort of beehive 60s ant hair, and she's, sure. you know, uh, she doesn't seem like a very lustful seductress character they just see her and fall in love with her and i think maybe the danger should be there like whether she means to or not she lures men in like the snake siren that she secretly is whether or not she's aware of it right um i think more could have been done with that character in in that way so what you're telling me is you you, you didn't want to do the wild thing with with the actress who did the gorgon man I just wanted to see what they saw in her because okay. they were both like ride or die for this woman basically as soon as they met her. Yeah. And I, you know, she held his hand while he was getting well and they were soulmates, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> There's yeah, not yeah. a lot of heat between the characters Fair and enough. I think well, that that would have Terrence helped. Fisher was a, you know, uh, described as a sort of right-wing Christian, so... Right. Who knows? He there wasn't did, did be lots of scenes of repressed, repressed sexualities. Although he, I think, just definitely loosened up later in his career with at least the the, the, the bosoms. Eventually, titties started to be mandated. I think. Yeah, but um, like I had fun with it. I had a whale of a time with it. I, even like when the old Columbia Pictures emblem came on, uh, and I'll admit that I, I saw it in the right frame of mind too. Like the right, right mood, right day. Yeah, yeah, right mood, and I was just tickled by it. Um, does it overstay its welcome going into the third act? Yeah. You can even argue that you know, I had one character too many. Although I did like the fact that we didn't really know who our lead character was for a while. I mean, Christopher Lee shows up and I, you kind of get the hint, hint that he's going to be the one, at least our hero. But I wouldn't say it doesn't pull the psycho, but we do ha see what? Like it's like the bo you know the one brother, then the father, then the other brother. All are doom and curse, and they spend a, a quality amount of time with them. We actually do get to see them. That 
I went a little ah, he's dead now. Um, so I don't know. I liked me the Gorgon. It's not original by any straight of imagination. It is your stereotypical monster movie. It's or it's you know it's that you know template of the monster movie. But I love it so for it. It's in a weird way. It's a typical Hammer movie. Yeah. But it's also playing with its ingredients a yeah. little bit. So yeah. Uh, worth a look. Worth great, a look. great villain. Seventh place, Rosemary's Baby from Ooh. director Roman Polanski, starring Mia Farrow, Ruth Gordon, and a bunch of other people. Not a lot of feminist horror movies on this list, but because before the, this film was made, there weren't a lot of really feminist horror movies. But yeah. um, I guess I'll put my honorable mention to Repulsion here, same director, similar yeah. themes. So uh, this... He was already popular, and uh, this definitely sort of got people noticed. It was obviously Chinatown that put him over the top as yeah. far as his filmmaking. This young woman finds herself the center of a satanic cult that's manipulating her into becoming the mother of Satan. And more problematic and scarier than that is the 60s is against her. The entire environment is against her. Her doctor is against her. Her friends are against her. Even people who aren't in the cult are against her because she's just a hysterical, delicate flower who doesn't know what's best for her and should just go home and listen to her husband and her kindly neighbor who are destroying her. Yeah. And to me, that works even more than the famous sort of, you know, what have you done with his eyes? Yeah. Uh, and uh, the really frustrating relationship between her, she and her husband. Oh. She is such a fucking punching bag that I know it's like probably like authentic to the age, but yeah. I genuinely found it frustrating that she wouldn't just ask a question yeah. or, or, you know, like, a, and well, she perhaps, does, though. perhaps by design, but like, yeah, if you, if you wake up scratched up from your husband and he just says, well, you were asleep. So I, I, I had sex with you anyway. Yeah. That is not okay. No. <laughs> that is, not okay no. and like 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 the fact that the movie pretends that that's okay and that she's gonna shrug it off suggests that there's actually something wrong with rosemary too which i don't think the movie ever really does address but yeah it's always been for me the culture around it is almost as bad as the actual cult the cult has a motivating force like they they have a reason for what they're doing they have a reason for oppressing rosemary yeah. Everyone else just does it without thinking about it. Yep. So it's it's Rosemary's baby. It was yeah, gonna be on the list. Uh, shocker, it's on the list. <laughs> um, I will say my bit when we get to it, but I agree I am not in my head going, yep, yeah, Rosemary's baby. Sixth place, brother. Alright, I can't believe this film is in sixth place considering that it's fucking really good and it's a classic. I think I'm putting it lower than it than it than it is just because I've seen it so many times. I've seen it in film classes that I've been, that we were supposed to study, you know, the use of sound, the use of set, uh, the use of storytelling. 
Um, but uh, and it's done by you know the master of suspense, and that is Psycho. This is a classic horror movie with capital H. Um, so many filmmakers have since taken from this movie. It is a great story. Uh, is it on your list, yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Anthony Perkins giving gives... the modern performance in the otherwise not very modern movie, but standing out because of it. Yeah. Yeah, um, there's some things that have not aged well due to our current political climate, but that's fine. It's, um, I don't know, there's something about Psycho, like, I just love even how he uses the cicadas when our, that character is walking up to the ho- Norman Bates' house, and you're just feeling that this is her walk to her doom. Um, basically, the plot uh, is this young secretary steals this money, it starts off as a crime caper, from the place in which she works and she's trying to, you know, go and connect with her lover and run away together. That's the whole idea. And she gets paranoid and decides to spend a night at this shoddy rundown Bates Motel. And then, well, mother comes out. To she play. has a shower and it's very refreshing and she drives on to a new better life and everybody lives happily ever after. I'm pretty sure that's how yep, that... that's yeah. exactly Robert Bloch's novel. Yeah. Um, well... We've kind of gone sapatico, kind of sort of. Okay. That was your sixth place, the Psycho. Yeah. In sixth place, I have a tie between Psycho and the Birds. Oh, interesting. Both directed by Mr. Hitchcock. Yeah. Um, an honorable mention to not the whole movie, but the murder sequence in Torn Curtain, mm. which is another of his sixties horror movies, in yeah. which, um, um, Jesus Christ, Paul Newman. Yeah. Uh, has this really prolonged and agonizing dead like this guy gets stabbed and beaten and then has his head stuck in a stove and it just goes on and on and on and it was we just weren't used to that kind of death but it's hard to call torn curtain a horror movie whereas psycho and the birds are very clearly horror movies yeah both based off of novels or uh, i think the birds might have been a short story um and both just perfectly executed like yeah if you want like well what's the big fuss about hitchcock wasn't he some kind of asshole sociopath yeah he was an asshole sociopath and he knew exactly what the fuck he was doing yeah. when he was making a suspenseful sequence yeah i uh controversially like i put them as a tie but i think i might prefer the birds oh to psycho. i do i do <laughs> the birds is on this list okay i, I, I separated them um I always think of that sequence where she's waiting for the school to let out and she's sitting on the bench having a cigarette mm-hmm. and on the monkey bars behind her, more and more birds yeah. keep on landing. There's lots of great things about the birds. Fucking love it. I yeah. mean, I, what what do I, what more can be said about the birds and about Psycho and about the horror show that went on behind the scenes of the birds? Yeah. And uh, like, yeah, but I can't dismiss Hitchcock. I won't s- yeah. dismiss Hitchcock. I just use this slot like... I allowed myself one tie per ten, and I tried to, like, relate it to a director. Yeah. So, I just sort of blew my Hitchcock all out in this one. Uh, In sixth place, Psycho and the Birds. And if you haven't seen Psycho and the Birds, I'm I'm surprised. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to imagine what it was like being in the audience when the climax happened, when the... When the secret is revealed that, you know, spoilers for those who have not seen a movie from the 60s. His mom's been dead the whole time. And it's actually Norman in one of his, you know, many multiple personalities as mother. Mm. 
who's been doing the actual killing. I, I'm just trying to imagine what that would have been like for audiences. Because like, a lot of people just went in cold. It, like, th- it got them coming back. It was, it was sort of like a Friday the 13th ending and that it shocked you and then you ran home and you told your friends you have to see this movie. In fact, I will watch it with you. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and that was the thing that, that brought it. Uh, again, I think you mentioned this too. It's kind of unfortunate, but it, it is the origin or the popularization of homosexuality, cross-dressing, quote-unquote trans or gayness being a facet of mental illness, which would grow and grow and grow until it finally popped like a balloon sometime in the late 90s. But uh, it was weird because it's strangely almost ubiquitous in the horror genre. Like, they they will go back, ring that bell over and over again. And unfortunately, Psycho might have been the movie that popularized it but uh you can't dismiss the hitch there's so much film language with psycho well, uh, with psycho that is shown beautifully even his use of sets with all the taxidermy birds that Nor- that norman has and the scene that where she's eating that sandwich like the fact that this is clearly the hunter and the prey and if it's your first time seeing it, you don't quite know it yet, but it's like this, this little things that hitch, well, not little, it's not subtle. There's all these birds literally almost like they're dead and staring at our heroine. We're set up to not like the main character because yeah. she's uh, out of wedlock or yeah. you know, having an affair and she yeah. steals money from her boss and yeah. she's a criminal. And we're set up to kind of like the awkward put upon Norman Bates. And yeah. This is weird delivery. It's actually a misnomer about birds. They actually eat rather a lot. He yeah. just seems so calm and fine and he yeah. is not. Yeah. So, boom. So... At number five, uh, once again, we're visiting Roman Polanski, and and you, you already talked about it. So, uh, but I'm going to say my bit about Rosemary's Baby. Um, some of the images in this movie, and it was talked about during the, one of the making of this movies that when they were seeing the dailies of what Roman was doing, because I think this film was shot where was it? New was, York or was New it York? No, New York, I think. Yeah. 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 Where especially you know, they were setting the, you know, the dailies of you know there was the rape scene and you know and the and the devil and like all the church like apparently the people at the studio were so hor- like they were excited but also horrified at just some of the sequences of images that Polanski was doing with Rosemary's Babies that stay with you st- still to this day you know like the boat sequence and just um, and when you realize that this woman is surrounded by enemies like. She, like she is caught when 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 it's revealed pretty pretty much, and we know that something's really wrong even before the end scene where everyone's revealed to be part of this cult, if you will, trying to you know the plot all along was to bring Satan and you know f- you know and father a child and then that she's been chosen. Um, I don't know, like, and it's all done. I think the novel's by Ira Levin. I think is is the is the writer's name, who was a you know pretty big on making these sort of these pulp fiction kind of uh, novellas at all. He also did the Stepford Wives, uh, Sliver, uh, and fairly feminist bend to him. Yeah, yeah, um, and it it just it hits a primal nerve. Uh, I think John Cassavetes is is or is it 
is it John Cassavetes? Yeah. Is the actor. Yeah. The he, actor. He, he, yeah. His character husband is so fucking evil. He's, awful. He's arguably the most evil character in the movie. Yeah. Really. Really. Other than maybe Satan himself. <laughs> but yeah. Like, like, just even like when when she finally gets to see the baby and how he just sort of walks shamelessly out of the room. It's like, you dick. You are a dick. I didn't really mention Ruth Gordon. He was uh, terrifying in this movie. I love her. And I love, like, she was in Harold and Maude, which yeah. obviously would be no business on this list. Yeah. But she's so lovable and so fucking charming in that movie. Yeah. And she's so hateable and so fucking awful in this yeah. movie yeah. that it's amazing it's the same actress. Yeah, it's, well, I think she got nominated for an Academy Award for her performance for this movie, I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't think we have to sell anybody on Rosemary's Baby. It's a classic point. horror movie. If you are a lover of horror films, you do need to see Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. My fifth place, you already mentioned it, Carnival of Souls, 1962, directed by Herc Harvey, starring Candace Hillegoss. And uh, nobody involved in this movie really went on to anything, but the movie itself went on to greatness. Mm-hmm. And there's some sort of melancholy romanticism about that, you know? Uh, all of my misgivings about the failure to find a home for Book of Trespasses is like, in my fantasy world, years and years from now, Book of Trespasses will be discovered and future generations will appreciate all of the time and energy and work that I put into it. Represent. Which is what happened with Harvey. But he told a friend that he thought he could make a horror movie and he discovered this pier that had all this carnival equipment on it that had been built to revitalize this community at the edge of a salt lake. But the lake had receded, so the pier wasn't standing on anything. It was just this dead white sand, and it was, like, lonely and in the middle of nowhere. And there's like, someone needs to shoot a horror movie here. So he raised the money, he wrote the screenplay, he had that place in mind, and he made this movie. And it is amateur, but you know what? An amateur movie is going to rank incredibly high on this list, and hell, this is number five. Yep. <laughs> um, the image of this weird dude who keeps following her, who reminds me of this famous hitchhiker character from the from the, the original Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. or the, like I said, her getting working at a church, but admitting to the churchman that she's not been much of a believer. She just wants to make a living playing the music, and uh, how sometimes people see her, and she can interact with people, and sometimes she can't, and the world is the rules of the world is just not clear. I don't know. There's this movie casts a spell. You do have to meet it a little bit halfway, and there is you can tell that it's cheaply made, that it's amateur made, but the images stick with you, and it just it it's got staying power. It is what people were when people say that that was haunting. That's that's what this movie is. It's haunting. Yeah, it's it's your very familiar sort of Jacob's Ladder template story. And yeah, anybody who's paid attention to the horror genre will, will maybe not be surprised by its ending. But the journey. Worth yep. it. Yep. Alright, so at, at number four, um, for those people who don't know that Alfred Hitchcock was a genius, he was also <laughs> a bastard. <laughs> yeah, bastard. Absolutely. Uh, um, I am going to uh, you know quickly promote another podcast called Behind the Bastards. I, I highly recommend you listen to the Alfred Hitchcock episode to the amount of sheer awfulness that Alfred Hitchcock did to Tippi Hendren. But that I don't want to talk about too much about that. I want to talk about how classic The Birds is. It's Hitchcock knew how to wind up an audience. 
He really, really did. Um, and this is his monster movie. This, it, it, I don't know any other kind of monster movie that he really did. So uh, it, it rubs me the right way there. <laughs> but the scene where Tippi Hedren is waiting for the kids to come out of school and, and one by one those birds start you know, flying in behind her on the playground is one of the most terrifying sequences that I've seen in recent memory. I Every time this movie is on, I'll stop what I'm doing and, and just watch it. Um, the Birds is a terrifying movie. I love how inexplicable it is. I haven't read the Demarier story, but like, yeah. birds start attacking people. They don't get into why. Yeah. Yeah. They don't get into like, you know. Yeah. Even when they're leaving, all the birds are just sitting around. Yeah. They just seem to have stopped. For now. For now. Yeah. There's this great uncertainty that hangs over everything. And yeah, it's strong. Yeah. Um, uh, I will say that there's a sequence not too much after, you know, when the involving the school. When the birds really attack in the third act. It's a full-on slaughter. Um, Tippi Hedren for five days. There's a sequence where the birds attack her and the kids and other people. Hitchcock, what Hitchcock did without really even telling her was her and a bunch of handlers because they had all these birds. She You're talking up, about the attic sequence. Well, yeah. yeah, and her running down the street as well. Where, you know, for five days straight, they threw bird after bird. Forget the animal cruelty angle of it. Um, no, what you see in the movie is real. She had scars to this day that, that happened. And she, it has no fucking business being in the movie. Man. If you watch the scene... She, for no reason, inexplicably walks upstairs to investigate a noise yeah. and walks into this room. It's full of birds and they attack her. I honestly believe this. I don't know this, but I, I believe. The, yeah. But Hitchcock put that scene in there so he could spend four days throwing birds at her. Yes. Because narratively, yes. it makes no sense. Yes. I think that's what the podcast suggests. Yeah. So it was just punishment. It was like she she said when she agreed to do the movie that she didn't want to... Uh, she wanted to minimize her interaction with actual birds. And yeah. he knew that she was phobic about it. Yeah. And this was a cruel punishment. Yeah. And it hurt the movie. So yeah. shame on you, Hitchcock. Yeah, but well, you can't dismiss the movie. No. Because <laughs> no, it's still it's, interesting. Oh, yeah, no. It's... it's wow. Uh, in fourth place for me... Uh, Undertake Quaiden at some point. I mean, you don't know how to do it today, but 1965 stars Tatsuya Nakadai and Rentoro Mukini, directed by Masaki Kobayashi. I hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, gorgeously shot horror anthology, subtitled, three hour running time, and absolutely worth your time. The Black Hair is a tale of marriage and the importance of communication. <laughs> The Woman in the Snow is the tale of the importance of keeping your promise, and it has echoes of a story told in Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, so uh, it was a pleasant surprise for me. Um, Huichi the Earless is probably the most bizarre, but uh, it's about how important having an audience is to an artist, and the the last and most bizarre story is In a Cup of Tea. about a guy who sees reflections of fate in his tea, literally. Mm. Um, and again, each of the isolated stories, you may or may not have heard them before, but I think, again, if you're if you're into horror movies, you won't necessarily be surprised by the beats of them, but how they're executed. They have the, the famous big matte painting backgrounds that a lot of 60s movies had, but they weren't 
trying for realism. Mm -hmm. So you have this glorious painted bit landscape in the background, but there's floating eyes in the sky, <laughs> you know, and just to add to like the, the surreality of it. I think my favorite might be the earless one where this guy is hired to play music for the dead. Mm. And he it reminded me of V in a weird way. And, mm -hmm. uh, they write all the stuff on him to protect him from the spirits that he's playing, but they neglect to cover his ears and it costs him his ears. It's a really interesting movie. And, um, I have a soft spot for, um, anthologies and because they are so chapter broken up, if you're intimidated by the running time, watch a story and take a break, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it, it feels alive and modern in a way that a lot of the 60s movies didn't. And I know, I don't know if it's Japanese or Chinese, I'm, I'm forgive me. I think my... it's Japanese. It also won, I think, the Special Jury Prize Award at the Cannes Film Festival. Guillermo del Toro goes on and on about yeah. how much he loves it. A lot of people have spoken like you, how influential this was. I do want to see it. I think the runtime at the time made me kind of go. Whoa. It felt like the homework thing. Yeah. Like when I when I read about it, like this, a lot of people said, and I'm doing an episode in the '60s and due diligence. Yeah. And uh, I went into it a little bit shields up, but it it won me over. Yeah. It's in fourth place. Yeah. I I've heard nothing but amazing things about it. There you go. Okay, at number three, um, William Friedkin has stated that this movie was a you know the scariest movie he'd ever seen and and the mask he used the mask as an example uh and even based the design of Pazuzu off the mask from the film Onibaba um you could take this film I sort of see this film almost a bit a little bit as a sort of an existential horror well it is an existential horror where nature has a huge aspect in the story and uh it does sort of affect uh dramatically our characters you get the sense that, especially for the old woman, that this is all leading to her death anyways. Like, you're just, like, there's a fatalistic nature to the film. We're, we are seeing, you know, the end story of at least her character. We're going to review it, but yeah, this woman and her daughter are basically living as scavengers yeah. uh, while this war is going on around yeah. them. Yeah, um, I do, and they play very empathetic villains like you understand like this they're surviving like, they're yeah this is like this is just survival yeah for them they're the, and it makes it very complex um you i would love to see a post-apocalyptic version of this like where you could change the setting somewhat um but there's so much going on with this film i love the relationship between the mother and the and the stepdaughter and, and, and finally what you know comes in between them um, I don't know it, 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 we're sitting in a sweaty garage right now and you can feel the heat from this movie mm -hmm. like there's lots of sequences and it's also like fiercely erotic as well uh, that, that was the attraction th between the daughter and the uh, vicious soldier guy yeah, yeah. like it, it's just but even the scenes of them like they're sleeping nude and like, the sweat off them like you can feel this movie once again, the use of the cicadas and the sound of the wind and the grass, which is a character in itself of the film. Um, and then there's the pit, that 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 deep, dark, where they, they dump the bodies. I don't want to say anything Where else. all the secrets go. We're going to do a full-length review yeah. of that one. Um, I love Onibaba. Um, and it is... 
it's an existential horror film. It's a very adult film, but still at the same time, there is some scary sequences going on and very interesting villains. In third place for me, this is absolutely the best discovery that I made. Uh, my number one and two I'd seen a lot of times before, and they were kind of one and two before we set out. But in third place from 1960, Eyes Without a Face. Wow, see. Starring Pierre Brasseur, Alida Valley, and directed by George Franju. After inadvertently causing an accident that horribly disfigures his daughter, the surgeon is obsessed. He's on this obsessive journey to fix his daughter's face. Yeah. And in order to do that, he has to find unwilling subjects and try these experimental trial and error surgeries of removing their face and putting it on his daughter's face. Yeah. And it has the most troubling violence I've seen in any 60s movie. Wow. So in that, like, we see, like, facial reconstructive operations on screen. We see incisions being made on people's face and below their eyes and, like, the lifting of flesh. Wow. And that is troubling and probably fairly unprecedented for the time that it was coming from. But then there's the scary thing about the movie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is his daughter who wears this doll mask over her yeah. face. And we usually see her wearing this little... She does look like a doll. She wears like the little blue dress that you would imagine from yeah. any little, little doll. But she has nothing on her face. She has this neutral mask. And I don't know if anybody's ever taken a drama class or done mask work with neutral masks. Yeah. There's just something uncanny about them. And they have, they have no expression and every expression. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, the girl doesn't have a lot to say. She's just sort of this present image. And all of this horror is being done on her behalf. And uh, it's, deeply, it's deeply troubling. There's a bit of body horror here. It's not necessarily torture porn because the people aren't alive or aren't awake while the surgery is happening to them. Yeah. But, like, you're torn about everything you're watching because do you want this little girl to have her face? I guess. But this isn't the way to go about it. Her father's goals are what a father would want for his child. But what yeah. he's doing is deeply troubling. And the imagery of it and the... Just the... Yeah. That little girl, that mask, those surgeries. I was knocked over by the movie. And, like, it made me wince. The movie kind of made me wince. And mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. So, in third place... Eyes Without a Face, my favorite discovery from this podcast. Well, the, that makes me deeply want to see it. Now, I, I regret not... I, I have no excuse. I ran out of time, but I didn't. Uh, I just never got around to seeing it, and everything I've read about it says that it, it, it is a terrifying movie. That this, and Quiet Down, I think, are yeah. both okay. worth your time. <clears throat> okay. Okay, yeah, well, I, I regret that it's not on my list, and I am sad that it's not on it. All right, but this was the film that I discovered when doing this list, and even though I'd heard about it, and even though it had been said as, um, you know, this is this, an argument can be made that this is the first slasher film ever made. And I also loved, uh, I found the backstory about what happened to the director after he made this movie and how he was run out of town. But he made a capital H horror film, Mike Powell did, with Peeping Tom. Um, I think the success of what makes this movie terrifying, though, is the performance not only of Karhinz Baum, I, I'm, it's Germanic. Sure. I, I, I'm sure I <laughs> I've been it. faking my way through these names, as you've obviously heard. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, he gives a really 
chilling performance like the psychology of this character and how he wants to you know capture this perfect image um and i is it Anne massey please like what's the the other woman's name is it helen it becomes a cat and mouse game from the, right. the halfway point like there's really there's there's there, there's two stories there, there's we see we get to know the character like the serial killer uh mark uh, and how he goes, we, we discover his method first, and we get introduced to this character, this sweet, naive young woman who really is like, kind of interested. I don't know about sexually, but definitely has this sort of empathetic view. To him, she, she, to her, she, he doesn't read as creepy, he reads as interesting, yeah. which is to her folly. <laughs> yeah. but maybe it's Vivian, maybe it's Moira Shearer. I cannot remember. Anyways, and I feel bad. The cat and mouse game that goes on in the latter half of the movie between them to him, uh, between these two, by the time we get there, and we, and we know as an audience how dangerous this guy is, and yet we still have this empathy because we have that party scene a little bit before where he feels so uncomfortable and she wants to, you know him to like re- really really come to this party, um, and then you know it be and then she goes into his lair if you will. And it does become this cat and mouse game, a race against time, because of course someone figures out who's actually killing all these people and realizes, you know, that this woman is in danger as well. The performances between the two are so compelling. Like you are in deep worry for this woman, where I forgot, like I, I didn't know whether she was going to live or die. Yeah, yeah. And the movie, like, also had like a really dark sexuality to it already. And I felt disturbed, and I could totally why that you know when it came out that people were horrified by it. But for its lurid subject, it's very professionally executed, yes. and that made it like inappropriate somehow. Yeah, it was bad enough that these movies exist at all, let alone that someone took it seriously. Yeah, and. It's such an outrage. Like, it's a really good movie. Oh, my God. I don't know. Did not deserve what happened to it. No. Seek this movie out. It's it's unnerving in a really classic horror movie kind of way. Number two. 1963, The Haunting, Robert Wise. I fucking love this movie, and I've always been a fan of it. I saw it at a young age. I very clearly remember my grandparents would take care of me a lot of times during the summertime, and I uh, would be left unattended in front of the TV. And the TV guide, this movie is going to be on called The Haunting, and I want to watch it. And it starts playing, and it's in black and white. And right away, my heart sinks. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And then I watched the movie, and it was scary. Yep. And uh, the main character, Eleanor, has been leading such a terribly depressed life, looking after her mother, being abused and underappreciated by her sister. And when her mother dies, basically she's lost all purpose. And, you know, she doesn't have her own agency enough to be able to take a car to be go to this place she's been invited to. Um, she's just happy to be included and happy to be having her own adventure. It feels like she's a teenager coming out of the house for the first time, but she's in her late 30s, <laughs> right? And she shows up to investigate Hill House. Unbeknownst to her, she's been selected because she'd had some poltergeist activity as a child and he thinks that her presence might help to awaken the house mm-hmm. and boy does it ever but you talk about the creepy history of the house that we're getting and how that's perfectly executed i agree you talk about the sexual tension between uh julie harris and claire bloom that's there and mm-hmm. i really love it yep but to me it's the way eleanor runs full tilt sprint 
to her grim fate that really makes this movie like the whole thing is just a snare waiting to it to for eleanor yeah the house is going to take eleanor and it's known probably since eleanor was born that this was her fate and she didn't and not only does she not fear it she runs to it because her life was already such a pile of shit that this is in a way the best thing that could have happened to her. Yeah. And like, she's way over invested. She falls in love with the doctor. She falls in love with the psychic. Yeah. She wants to be with them to be best friends forever, but she's wholly there on the pretext that they're going to be there for a few nights to study Hill House. Yeah. Like these are not her best friends. Yeah. And, uh, great acting. The director, Robert Wise, you know, was not exactly a hack. Yeah. West Side Story. And the, he did the, uh, the Star Trek, the motion picture. And like, it's just class act all the way around. Yeah. It got me interested in Shirley Jackson as a writer. And, like, it just... It was the movie that taught me that old didn't necessarily mean boring or not scary. Or, you know... And it's a bloodless movie. Yep. And as far as implicit supernatural stuff, we don't see a lot. Nope. A door frame swells. There's some banging noises. Yeah. What we see is people's reaction. We see people being terrified, yep. and we become terrified for them and with them. Yep. I know a lot of people, I mean, it's on a lot of people's list, but a lot of people would say it's too high at number two, mm. and maybe it's personal to me, but I have always loved The Haunting, and I always will. So, number two. Yeah. So, at number one, number one. I don't think this should be a surprise. <laughs> We're going to agree on number one, or I'm going to kick yeah. you out of the garage. <laughs> Woo! See, them's fighting words. Well, then, I'm going to talk about the Bugs Bunny and Tweety show. <laughs> um, man, what can I say about Night of the Living Dead? We've already reviewed it for Rank and Review, so I think, you know, for the listeners, if you want to, like, hear about how much we love this movie uh, and, and how powerful this movie still is to this day... I'm, once again, trying to imagine the audience members watching this for the first time at a drive-in or a theater. Like, Stephen King has a story about watching it for the first time. And just how jaw-dropping. Still, to this day, one of the biggest fuck-you endings ever for a horror movie. Like, until The Mist, it really didn't even have competition. Yeah, it's (laughs) such a Debbie Downer of an ending. Um, and, and it just, well, it's the zombies, man, or ghouls, as the, you know, there's said by, um, Romero. Um, oh, man, like the sequence with the young girl in the basement. And I know Cooper's an asshole, but you can understand that he's, you know, in fight or flight at this point. And, and Cooper is an asshole, but his daughter has been wounded. Yeah. And he doesn't know that she's going to turn into, uh, a creature. Yeah. He's already in a stressful situation, and he's he's sort of proven that he's been a little bit cowardly by hiding in the basement. So he yeah. starts off on the wrong foot with this guy, yeah. and never bothers to get back on the right foot yeah. with Ben. So yeah, of course, Night of the Living Dead was my number one, and there yeah. was like maybe I was going to watch a movie that was going to shake my perspective on it, but. Yeah. If there is a more influential horror movie from the 1960s, yeah. The Night of the Living Dead, and I'm not talking horror movies, yeah. I'm talking movies, yeah. period, yeah. end of sentence. All right. If there's a more influential movie in the 60s than Night of the Living Dead, I can't name it 
off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Midnight Cowboy may be respected, but it hasn't, you know, born a whole new subgenre, <laughs> right? Yeah. And like the basic the basic thesis of the the movie that six strangers put together in a farmhouse when asked to find a set of keys and fill a car with gas yeah. with their lives at stake yeah. cannot make that happen yeah. is so fucking on point. Yep. And it was on point then and it's on point now. This was yeah. 1968. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how amateur it is and how intrusive the score is at times yeah. or how some of the acting is better than others. Yeah. The premise is so rock fucking solid yeah. and it reimagined and reinvented zombies like zombie cinema as yeah. we understand it. Yeah. Walking Dead and the rules of that universe is slavishly like reliant on Romero. There are Romero zombies and there are other types of zombies, but those other types of zombies would not exist. Yes. If not for Romero. Yeah. And bringing the social angle, the political angle, the racial themes, yeah. all at once in one package, yeah. and that it still packs a punch yeah. in 2022. Yeah. I would I would take issue with anybody that I was doing this just like, really? Night of the Living Dead's not your number one? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. Like, I'm not mad. I wouldn't be mad that if you're 30 wasn't King Kong versus Godzilla. But I would have been maybe mad outward. I would have been disappointed Fair if, enough. if Night of the Living Dead wasn't number one. Yeah. And, I mean, anybody who knew me a little bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, gee, what's Larry going to put on top of the list? Yeah. No. Uh, it's, it's 100% George Romero. I love the fact, and you didn't mention it, like just the maddening... Uh, idea that all they have to do is work together and that's all and they can't do it they can't like the, the, all they have to do is walk out the zombies don't move uh, that quickly they could just walk out get the key turn it on not panic drive save each other drive off I just ah just keep your shit together. together get your poop in a group yeah but no nope no, 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 and like I always refer to the Cooper character whenever there's a really difficult character in a movie yeah. as the Cooper, yeah. but most of the time they're not motivated. Like I said, yeah. Cooper's a fucking asshole. Yeah. But this is an unprecedented situation that's just dropped in his lap, yeah. and his daughter is slowly dying in front of him. Yeah. He doesn't know she's going to turn into a ghoul, but he probably suspects that this is no not going to end me. well. Yeah. And uh, it was shocking for its day, and because uh, the prince got sent out with a copy without copyright signature, mm-hmm. much like Carnival of Souls, yep. any of the independent theater owners who noticed it could make a copy of the film yeah. and run it at midnight yeah. indefinitely, and it's all profit for them. Yeah. So again, Romero didn't make money off the movie, but it made his career. Yep. So. Yep. No. No. Night Living Dead. It's number one.
So uh, I've turned the fan on because it's hot in here. So, hot in uh, the hot tub. But I still think we're going to have quality sound. So let's, let's just press forward. All right. Um, so here, that was our ranks. And I think that it was, you have a good list. I respect it. I like that we, we started, you know, top and bottom of the list was the The same. bookends were nice. And uh, that wasn't planned. That just happened. Although yeah. I would have been, like I said, very surprised if you and I didn't agree on number one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm mad at myself, though, yeah. uh, because I forgot a film and I wanted to switch it. I know we can't because the list rank are officially <laughs> there, so it's an honorable mention. But it, it would have been 29. I'm mad at myself. Right. But the Day of the Triffids. Right. Uh, which was going to be on my honorable mentions, which is what I wanted to hit here. Yeah. I There was lots of movies that I watched, and yeah. um, the, there are reasons for discluding them range you know if yeah. my level of interest dropped to a certain degree that yeah. I felt like I wasn't loving it I would I I abandoned a few pictures while I was oh, yeah. the no, 60s as, thing as did I. and uh, I don't typically do that I like to think of myself as a fairly patient fellow um, but here are some that I actually watched front to back I'm not okay. counting anything that I didn't finish okay. um, you mentioned targets yeah uh, I thought that was a really interesting one in that uh, you know, it was somebody damaged by yeah. their service to the country that's come back to commit these horrible crimes. Yeah. The, 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 it's hard not to see the Frankenstein thing in it yeah. with the actors. But, um, like I said, I think when you mentioned it, it sort of seemed like a precursor to what we would see in Rambo. Yeah. You know, this... Falling down. Yeah. Yeah. This man who was, or at least could have been good. Yeah. That sunk down to this. The villain, I don't think they could, I don't know... He's interesting. I just didn't quite buy his transition. Um, I I still like the movie a lot. I do find the Bartos, the Boris Karloff's uh, narrative thread a lot more interesting up until the climax. Right, but it was very topical when yes. it came out, and it was yes. kind of an edgy, gutsy, ballsy movie. Yes. Uh, no way to treat a woman is one of these, you know, sociopathic mistreatment of women. But I find it to be hilarious. Just. The whole decade could yep. be called No Way to Treat a Woman. Yep. And, uh, uh, you know, Rod Steiger gives a, you know, commendably brutal performance in it. But I had so many on the list that didn't quite measure up as horror, you know, like Wait Until Dark or whatever yep. and things like that. It just, I couldn't quite put it on there. I know I'm supposed to really like whatever happened to Mary J- or Baby Jane. Yeah. There's a, there's a, lot of people talking about it. They made a whole movie or mini-series about the behind-the-scenes They made a movie of it with Faye Dunaway, which by all accounts is awful. But I have to say, like, watching the experience, my experience of watching the movie, I do not know what the fuss is about. I think that there's much more interesting stuff around and about the movie than the movie itself being interesting. But I did watch it, and uh, just to make a list, you just mentioned Day of the Triffids, that's also on the list. Yeah, I I like that movie, I'm actually mad at myself. But I will say this, the execution of it at times is, well, it's silly. The plants themselves are giggled, like... There's a scene where like they walk like and their roots are walking for them. I'm like, yeah, and you're almost jealous of the uh, characters who can't see the plants in yeah. a weird way because yeah, yeah they don't sell it. But it's another one sort of like Village of the Damned where the premise is really really strong. Yeah. Um, we're gonna review Last Man on Earth. I'm yeah. a big fan of the Matheson story, and yeah. I do like the movie, but 
I had enough issues with yep. it that I had to take it off of the list and fair enough something else. I believe you did include Curse of the Werewolf, which I did, I did watch. And then I thought of you when I watched it, A, because it was a werewolf, and because it was kind of a different werewolf yep. movie. It was a little, like a lot of the Hammer movies, like, like the Gorgon, which we're going to talk about, a lot yep. of the action was saved for the last ten minutes of the movie, which yep. is, you know, is what it is. But And a controversial one, uh, sort of a double finish for this, but they're both science fiction movies, but I think that both of them, a case could be made. Sure. Planet of the Apes. Yeah, yes. So as far as this character understands it, he and his crew are the last of humanity, and yeah. he watches all of them die. One of them stuffed into an ornament. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then the realization that this isn't an alien planet. Sorry if I'm wrecking a movie from 1962 or whatever it is. You uh, are fucking... You, you maniacs! Yeah. But that, just the holy shit nature, yeah. like, you could make the case. The other harder case to make, but I'm just going to mention it, is Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. How? Okay. Hal as a computer, and I know he's basically the third act of the movie and not yeah. the entire movie, Yeah. but the inability to rationalize and fight against this artificial intelligence, yeah. like, and uh, just the subversion of it, it goes from, uh, he, I won't open the pod pay door, yeah. to when, you know, he's inside the brain of Hal and disconnecting, and Hal's AI doing everything he can to try and stop what are you doing, doing Dave? Dave? Yep. But you've, you you've can make already it. spent all of your credibility with Dave. Dave is going to shut you down. Yeah. But there is something horrifying. Like, he kills the crew to protect the mission. Yep. And, uh, I don't know. Like, it's not a horror movie. I yeah. didn't put it on the list. But, uh, again, if I was making a list of scariest antagonists... Yeah. from the 60s Hal would be on that list yep well even the monolith itself there's such mystery around it that you know there is a genuine fear it does at least take out the eardrums of a whole lot of ast astronauts in this in the second story um, so I could buy 2001 um, it is definitely science fiction it does have some fear to it yeah. um, the first two acts and again that movie feels like three short films in a yeah. weird way there's yeah. like the the dawn of man yeah and then the the moon monolith and jupiter then, moon i think yes yeah and then the the trip to see the finals yeah leading to the star child or whatever yeah yeah no i know it's designed to blow your mind and not creep you out but i've always thought hal was creepy no hal is very much a complex villain and yes like i said in the introduction are there 60s movies that i missed or that i maybe yes. started watching on the wrong day or that i just didn't get around to yeah yes but considering <laughs> i i did a lot of work on this i don't yeah. like <laughs> i did my due diligence yeah and i'm not unhappy with my list yeah am i gonna find other movies from the 60s later on in life that's yeah. gonna make me go why is that not here yeah of course yes <laughs> so it's it the list fell how you know fell as it laid yeah um it was fun discovering some movies that i just didn't even know existed and enjoyed um and like and i i even admitted earlier that i didn't get around to you know quad and quad then yeah quad then eyes without a face and eyes without a face that i'm sure would have made the list so there's still classic movies that a lot of top you know websites say you you, you have to see this that 
So many Hammer movies. Yeah. So many Roger Corman oh, movies. Oh, yeah. So many cheap drive-in fare movies, some of which are really hard to watch. Yes. But I guarantee you there's some diamonds out there to be yep. discovered, too, you know? I am surprised that Dementia 13 did not actually make your oh, list. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, it's interesting to see the first feature film made by Francis Ford fair Coppola, enough. but I don't think it was seriously going to be a contender for me. I didn't hate the experience. Well, we reviewed it together. You know, I didn't yeah. hate it, but I, yeah. I, I believe I said when we reviewed it, would we be talking about this film or fighting ways to defend it if it wasn't Francis Ford Coppola? Right? Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but again, I, I watched those Bergman movies from the 60s just to do yeah. my due diligence. And uh, with the Spirits of the Dead, a big part of the, the Fellini, Louis Mal, yeah. doing horror? Yeah. Okay. Yep. No, no. <laughs> so, I get it. I get it. Thanks for doing this, brother. And there it was. We did it. We got through the best of the 1960s. So I guess I better get to work on the best horror movies from the decade of 2010 to 2019. Oh, my brain hurts. Um, thank you so much for listening to this epic two-part rank and review. Please send your feedback. Because it's always welcome to review at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com The website is rankandreview.ca and um, if you're having trouble with the two-week gap in between episodes, I invite you to plug into your ears the Shelf Shedding Movie Show and the Terror Table Podcast, which are a couple of podcasts that are local to me and who are friends of mine, so support them. Thank you for listening to Rank and Review. We drop every other Wednesday and... Big love from your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons.